Good morning. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Heather Conley. I direct our Europe program uh, and, and coordinate our Russia, Arctic, and Turkey programs. We are delighted to welcome you to the eighth annual Transatlantic Forum on Russia. Uh, CSIS is very proud to be in partnership with the Center for Polish-Russian Dialogue and Understanding under the leadership of Dr. Ernest Wojciechowicz. I will introduce Ernest uh, in, a, in a bit uh, and tell you more about the center's great work. As they say, timing is everything. And when we planned this, the topic of this forum many months ago, it seemed absolutely appropriate to think about transatlantic policy uh, on Russia through the lens of the fifth anniversary of the illegal annexation of Crimea and Russia's military intervention in Donbass. Little did we know this week would be such a historic week in Washington. And so we do this uh, understanding that there's many things going on, but there are other more important anniversaries today that we should consider. Today is the sixth anniversary of the beginning of the Euromaidan protests. And I think we should put that into our, our thought process. Today, uh, if I'm reading news reports correctly, seven Ukra Ukrainian soldiers were injured today. The ceasefire is not a ceasefire. And today, uh, there was the reopening of the Luhanska Bridge after being destroyed in 2015. So we have both anniversaries, bridge building, and a hot war that continues. So this is the topic by which we're focusing not only transatlantic policy with a view towards Ukraine, but also to Moldova and Georgia and Belarus. And we have a really exciting program for you, and we're very excited to begin the day. And I could not think of a better person to start this eighth forum off than Senator Chris Van Hollen, uh, the senator from Maryland. Senator Van Hollen started his outstanding and long-standing public service career as a member of the Maryland State Legislature and was elected as Maryland's uh, eighth congressional district in 2002 and quickly rose uh, in, in the ranks of the Democratic leadership in the House. And in November 2016, he was elected uh, to the United States Senate. Senator Van Hollen serves on two very important committees that have a great deal of influence about how the United States conducts policy towards Russia. As a member of the Senate Banking Committee, um, uh, that very important committee oversees U.S. sanctions policy. And Senator Van Hollen has been a leading thought leader on uh, Russian sanctions. Having been a witness in front of that committee, I can tell you how thoughtful that committee is on thinking through the implications of U.S. policy. Uh, regarding sanctions. He also serves on the Appropriations Committee and is a member of the subcommittee of the State Department and Foreign Operations and Related Programs. And if we've learned anything over the last several uh, weeks, we know how important U.S. assistance is to Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, and other post-Soviet states. 
So with that, we begin our eighth annual Transatlantic Forum on Russia. We thank our dear partners, the, the Center for Polish and Russian Dialogue and Understanding, and we are so grateful to you, Senator Van Hollen, for taking time away from an extremely busy schedule to offer your reflections. We're going to go to some questions and answers and welcome you as well. So welcome, colleagues, and please join me in warmly welcoming Senator Van Hollen. Well, thank you, Heather, for that very uh, warm introduction. Uh, more importantly, thank you for your leadership uh, here at CSIS. And I want to thank uh, CSIS and the Center for Polish-Russian Dialogue and Understanding for inviting me to speak with you today about U.S. policy toward Russia, and thank all of you for joining us. Uh, Thirty years ago, uh, long before I ever thought of running for elected office myself, uh, back when I ran in 1990 uh, for the Maryland House of Delegates, but before that I served on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff. And in that capacity I traveled to Poland uh, with former Senator Paul Simon, Senator from Illinois, uh, where we met with Lech Walesa, who was then the leader of the Solidarity Movement. That meeting took place just months before historic elections that brought an end to the communist rule in Poland and paved the way for the end of the Berlin Wall and uh, the dismantlement of the Iron Curtain. Uh, the world looked very different then. Uh, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, uh, the, the victory of Western liberal democratic ideals seemed to be total. Uh, some even heralded the moment as, quote, the end of history. Uh, but as we know, history did not end. In fact, it often returns again in a different shape. Uh, today, uh, Russia once again represents one of the most serious threats to U.S. national security interests. Its aggressive use of military power, including the annexation of Crimea and the incursion into Ukraine, has challenged the post-Cold War status quo in Europe. Vladimir Putin has also leveraged Russia's trade and energy ties with countries like Turkey to effectively exploit cracks within the NATO alliance, and for the first time in decades has positioned Russia as an important player in the Middle East and North Africa. At the same time, under President Putin, Russia has weaponized new technologies to interfere in democratic elections in the United States and in Western Europe. So the challenge facing the United States and President Trump when he took office in January 2017 was to define and implement a comprehensive American strategy to confront all aspects of this threat, military, political, economic, cyber, and others. Unfortunately, in my view, President Trump has not meaningfully challenged Russia's malign conduct. In fact, the opposite has been true. He has repeatedly deferred to President Putin. At the Helsinki summit, he publicly sided with Putin against our own intelligence agencies regarding Russian interference in the 2016 elections. For two years now, he has refused to apply the full array of sanctions mandated by the CATSA law that was passed uh, with a big bipartisan majority in 2017. And his recent decision to withdraw U.S. 
forces from northeast Syria and betray our Syrian Kurdish allies in the fight against ISIS has further solidified Putin's role as the kingmaker in that area. The image of a Russian flag flying over a former U.S. Special Forces base in the Syrian border town of Kobani is one that neither our friends or adversaries will soon forget. The good news is that at least in the early part of this administration, the Congress, on a bipartisan basis, pushed back against President Trump and some of his moves on this area. However, the bad news is that pushback, that bipartisan pushback, has weakened in recent months. So let me outline what I think our strategy toward Russia should be. First, we need to put our own house in order by shoring up the NATO alliance and strengthening our other partners to deter Russian aggression. Second, uh, we need to work with our allies and partners to use our economic and political leverage to confront malign Russian conduct. Third, as we confront malign conduct, we should also seek areas of mutually beneficial cooperation, especially regarding nuclear arms control. So let me cover those three areas, uh, beginning with shoring up the NATO alliance and strengthening our partners. The current national defense strategy rightly describes Russia as a, quote, revisionist power that seeks to, quote, shatter the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and change European and Middle East security and economic structures to its favor. That's from the National Defense Strategy. That was formulated by former Secretary of Defense, Mattis, and it emphasizes the need to bolster our alliances and partnerships to counter Russia. In fact, the strategy references alliances and partnerships 30 times within that document. And while President Trump has disparaged the NATO alliance and sometimes questioned its mission, the national defense strategy outlined by Secretary Mattis enjoys widespread bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. And Congress has played an important role in pushing back on the assaults we've seen on the NATO alliance. A couple of examples. In 2018, the Senate reconstituted what's known as the Senate NATO Observer Group, uh, of which I'm a member. That was designed to send a signal that, that Congress cares about uh, the NATO alliance. Uh, for the first time ever in its history, uh, the Congress invited a NATO Secretary General to address a joint session of Congress. And most importantly, Congress has used its constitutional power of the purse to provide the resources necessary to support our national security objectives. Uh, we have provided comprehensive security assistance to our European allies and partners, including through the European Deterrence Initiative and other bilateral programs. That initiative plays a critical role in countering Russian aggression. It funds U.S. troop deployments in Europe, training and exercises with allies, and the prepositioning of U.S. military assets in European countries and it improves U.S. bases and build, builds partner capacities. So that was a, a congressional initiative. However, as you may have seen in the news, a substantial part of that assistance has been redirected by the President 
to unrelated purposes. Specifically, uh, the President cut $770 million from the European Deterrence Initiative to pay for a border wall with Mexico. I'm not going to get into debate about the merits of the wall, but transferring those funds is unacceptable. And we are working right now in the conference committee of the National Defense Authorization Bill, which is a conversation that was going into late hours last night uh, to prevent these kind of transfers from happening. Uh, while we're on the topic of funds duly appropriated by the Congress, I should mention uh, the drama that is playing out right now on Capitol Hill. Uh, yesterday, our ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, confirmed his understanding that the President had orchestrated a scheme to withhold nearly $400 million in security assistance to Ukraine in order to get Ukrainian leaders to interfere in our upcoming U.S. election. As former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch said in her testimony uh, before the House Intelligence Committee, the President's conduct, quote, undermines the U.S., exposes our friends, and widens the playing field for autocrats like President Putin, unquote. That's our former ambassador to the Ukraine, who as the son of a Foreign Service officer, I must say she and others have made me extremely proud in standing up and telling the truth, whatever the consequences may be. Today, we expect to hear testimony from Fiona Hill, uh, another well-regarded, well-respected expert on Russia, who is expected to say that the fictionalized account of Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election only emboldens Moscow. Uh, we also know that Secretary Pompeo, upon arrival at the recent NATO meeting, was greeted with a lot of skepticism about uh, the U.S. Uh, constancy and consistency with regard uh, to NATO, President Macron saying recently that the NATO alliance, uh, we, we are experiencing the brain death of NATO and saying that the United States has turned its back on us, unquote. So we got a lot of work to do uh, on a bipartisan basis to shore up our alliances and make clear our commitment uh, to our partners. So that's in make, putting our own house in order in terms of um, uh, defense. Uh, but in addition to shoring up our alliances, we should pool our economic and politi political leverage uh, to counter M Russians' malign activity. Economic sanctions are a blunt and often imperfect instrument, but they can, especially when our partners are unified, play an important role. Uh, the United States and the European Union first imposed sanctions on Russia in 2014 in response to Russia's annexation of Crimea. Uh, and I'd argued that those sanctions against Russia have had some success. While Russia has not returned Crimea or withdrawn from Ukraine, those sanctions have helped discourage over the years a further escalation of Russian aggression in the region, which was one of the principal objectives. The European Union and the United States had to make clear that there would be a price to pay uh, for uh, those aggressive actions. And in one of the few moments of meaningful bipartisan pushback to the Trump administration in 2017, the Congress passed the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, CATSA, 
in response to Russia's interference in the 2016 elections, as well as its actions in Ukraine and Syria. Uh, Republicans in Congress uh, overwhelmingly supported this legislation. It passed over the objections of the Trump administration with a huge veto-proof majority. Um, as a result, the President essentially was forced to sign it or essentially experience an early uh, overturning of a veto. However, since the Congress passed the CATSA law, the administration has failed to impose many of the sanctions against Russia for interference in the 2016 election. Uh, which gets me to my next point, which is when it comes to sanctions, uh, we, in my view, need to look at how we can better design sanctions a policy so that we can better deter future bad behavior rather than just punish bad conduct after the fact. Uh, the United States almost always responds with sanctions after crises are already underway, so they're unable to deter adversaries' bad actions in the first place, making sanctions less effective. Uh, that's why in early 2018, I teamed up with uh, Senator Rubio. We introduced the Bipartisan Deter Act, which is designed to deter Russian interference in future U.S. elections, so we don't have a repeat of 2016. Yes, the United States should strengthen its election systems, and we need to make sure that uh, they're hardened on a local basis. Uh, yes, we need to make sure foreign money is not coming in to pay for campaign ads. But in my view, the, the best defense is a good offense. And the, the Turak says up front, very clearly, Russia or another country, if we catch you interfering in the next elections, if our director of national intelligence concludes that Russia's interfered in a future elections, there will be automatic, automatic, swift, and very painful sanctions, not just on a few oligarchs, but on sec big sectors of the Russian economy, banking, energy, and other areas. The hope, of course, like nuclear deterrence, is that these sanctions are never used, that you create enough of a penalty up front to deter the action in the first uh, place. Uh, right now, Putin's interference in American elections is cost-free. In fact, he benefits from creating division and people questioning the integrity of our elections. So you need to make it clear up front that there will be a price to pay and it will be automatic. It won't be, okay, Congress is going to spend a couple months trying to figure out how to respond. If you want deterrence, you need to have a credible upfront automatic threat, and that's what the Deter Act is all about. Unfortunately, as we speak, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, has blocked action on that. We are trying to put that provision in the National Defense Authorization Bill. Uh, as I said, those conversations were going on uh, last night. So even though we currently have a very adversarial relationship with Russia, there are still areas of mutual interest that demand engagement and cooperation. In my view, chief among those are lowering the risks of nuclear conflict and preventing a costly and destabilizing arms race. Even during the height of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union understood it was in our mutual interest to ensure that our strategic competition did not spiral out of control. And 
Today, this longstanding area of mutual interest is shrinking as this administration seems intent on tearing down uh, the arms control regime that has benefited uh, U.S. national security interests and that of our European allies, and I would argue that of Russia uh, for almost half a century. I mentioned over 30 years ago, I was a staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, one of the things I worked on was the ratification of the INF Treaty, the treaty that had been negotiated between uh, Gorbachev and Reagan. And the breakdown of the INF Treaty 30 years later will create more a more unstable security situation in Europe. Russia is to blame for deploying some of the missiles that were banned by the INF Treaty. But in my view, the Trump administration's decision to withdraw without a feasible plan for what comes next made a bad situation even worse. Russia can now build up its ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles free of any legal and political repercussions and take full advantage of its very large landmass for deployments. On the other hand, the United States is years away from having an operational INF systems, and deploying them to Europe will be a politically divisive issue for NATO. Again, thinking back over 30 years ago, I recall all of the divisions created by the deployment of the Pershing II missiles. Now, the, the, the end of the INF Treaty uh, and growing strategic instability has also cast doubt on the future of New START, which is now the last remaining arms control agreement constraining United States and Russian nuclear forces. In my view, extension of New START should be a national security priority. Together with maintaining a strong nuclear deterrent, arms control is a tool for containing the military capabilities of our adversaries. First, renewing the treaty until 2026 means capping Russian strategic nuclear forces and thereby preventing it from deploying more delivery vehicles and warheads, which it will be poised to do as it nears completion of its current modernization program. Second, New START limits and the limits of New START and the transparency measures give us the stability and predictability we need to modernize our own nuclear forces uh, in a steady way, which is a long and expensive process that we're only now embarking on. Third, uh, New START provides uh, important verification and monitoring regimes uh, that not only deters uh, Russian cheating, but also gives us valuable insight into the operations, composition, and location of Russia's nuclear forces. And that transparency on both sides, in my view, strengthens stability by reducing uncertainty. That's why I've teamed up uh, with Senator Young of Indiana to introduce bipartisan legislation urging the administration to extend New START as a way of advancing our strategic interests. Unfortunately, uh, we do not see an administration at this time moving in that direction. So, uh, in conclusion, the current administration has it backwards, in my view. It has refused to seek cooperation where it makes the most sense to protect our interests, like nuclear arms control. But it has refused to challenge Russia where it matters most, like protecting our elections and our democracy and making it clear that we will support our allies and partners against Russian aggression. 
At the start of this administration, uh, I think Congress did play an important bipartisan role as a counterweight. Unfortunately, uh, that bipartisan counterweight in Congress seems to be diminishing by the day, and many of these issues will only be resolved through the 2020 presidential elections. I just end by saying, as the son of a Foreign Service officer, uh, nothing has pained me more than to see the assault that has occurred on many of our professional diplomats, but nothing has made me prouder uh, than the fact that they've stood up as professionals, both in their jobs and in telling the truth. And the challenge for the next Secretary of State will be to restore morale and make it clear to our Foreign Service officers uh, that we have full confidence uh, in their abilities to represent our country. Thank you all very much uh, for being here, and I look forward to the discussion. Comprehensive remarks, and I think it always is a great way to start a, a longer discussion that we're going to have today yep. in great uh, framing. I, I want to first say, I think one of the most important things that deters Russia is our bipartisanship. Uh, when we are divided, that is where they can amplify that division. So I really thank you for always reaching across the aisle, whether that's Senator Rubio, Senator Young, Senator Graham, and, and other legislation to say we have to do this together. So I, yes, I, I as agree a, with you. As a thank bipartisan you. institution, we have to celebrate bipartisanship. So yes. uh, thank you very, very much. What I thought I'd do in I turn to our audience is, is walk through a little of, the, of your three points. And what I'd like to first do is focus on malign influence. Um, and you have been particularly focused on election interference. Obviously, that is really our frontline defense of yes. our democracy. Can I ask you sort of your, your sense of how we're preparing for 2020? Um, I see a government that is, is trying to organize itself, work collaboratively with the states. In part, the legislation would require the Director of National Intelligence, I understand, to give you an assessment of that. Yeah. Maybe you want to grade 2018, the midterm elections, but help us, how, what are you thinking about? What are you concerned about? What are you happy about as you're seeing you know, us evolve in this space? So I think there's mixed news here. I think the good news is that uh, states, uh, in most cases, have uh, taken the threat seriously and are working to try to strengthen their systems uh, against uh, cyber attacks. Uh, we know from a very comprehensive uh, review of 2016, uh, first by U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, then by the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee on a bipartisan basis, uh, that every single state, all 50 states last time, experienced some level of uh, efforts of, of Russia uh, to interfere. Again, there was a whole scale. Uh, so those states have taken that seriously. There are still states that have not implemented a paper ballot uh, record, which is really important because if you have any doubt about the electronic results, if you question whether they've been manipulated in any way through uh, interference, that paper backup is important. I want to make it clear, there's no evidence of Russia actually changing uh, results in 2016, but uh, you can imagine people developing the capability to do that, and a paper backup system is really important. 
Uh, it's also true that um, there's lots of legislation that's been introduced with respect to uh, how we deal with social media. Um, we really should pass that. Uh, we've not gotten a lot of that legislation passed. I'm a co-sponsor of much of it. Amy Klobuchar and others have been very involved in that. Uh, the, the, the social media companies, I will say, uh, in my view, having not you know, addressed this issue in 2016, have taken some very important steps uh, to address it uh, in uh, the upcoming elections. All that being said, I, I see all that as defense. As I said in my remarks, there's a big missing piece here, which is instead of just trying to fight, you know, defend yourself with incoming interference, the best strategy is to, is to deter it in the first place. And the only way to do that is to make it clear up front that the penalties that are paid are not worth the benefits of interference. So how does Russia benefit now from interfering or any country that interferes? Well, it creates division within the country. Obviously, if they interfere on behalf of a particular candidate, uh, they, uh, you know, that can impact the outcome of an election. Um, and so right now, there's, there, there are only perceived benefits uh, by Russia and Putin to interfering in our elections, and in, and in Europe as well. Uh, we just, you know, we're talking about it in the UK uh, right now with respect to Brexit and other issues. So uh, that is why you need to state up front that there is a price to pay and it will be automatic and it's not going to be months and months while Congress, you know, struggles to figure out what the result will be. That is the purpose of the Deter Act and uh, it's very troubling uh, that we've not gotten it passed yet. We are working right hard right now to include it in the in, uh, defense authorization bill. And I think more broadly when it comes to sanctions, um, which as I said are a perfect tool, but we need to think about them a little more strategically in the way I'm talking about because it is often difficult to reverse behavior after the fact because of sanctions. You can obviously increase the, the pain uh, a country's experience. I mean, the 2014 sanctions uh, because of Russia's annexation of Crimea, I think, were required. Uh, but as we think about them going forward, I think we should give more thought to making it clear up front uh, what kind of conduct will um, trigger sanctions. You can't, obviously you can't foresee every contingency, but certainly protecting our democracy is one that we can foresee. Absolutely. So, yeah. And if I can just uh, pull a little bit more on the, you know, how do we more strategically think about sanctions? Again, I think that the challenge for us as we look at the policy, sanctions are tools yeah. that, that work towards a policy, and because there's not clarity on the policy, the sanctions, the tool becomes, in fact, the hammer becomes the policy uh, in many ways. Yeah. But one idea that we had in a, a long-standing research that we've been conducting at CSIS is looking at very specifically malign economic influence. And I know the Senate Banking Committee um, has been thinking about, again, greater transparency on ultimate beneficial ownership, these shell companies, letterbox companies, where in some ways the, the malign influence, and Russia is not the only actor, they're just a, a, they use it very well, uh, using Western bank accounts, Western banks, uh, to enhance uh, their economic fluence, whether that is purchasing of political parties or influential voices or social media and things like that. How do we get at the sort of the, the economics and help, uh, if I may use the drain the Kremlin's inner circle swamp yep. uh, that are using so much of the Western system? Uh, any thoughts on how we can do yes, that? Yes, I'm glad you raised that because uh, the banking committee is uh, 
looking closely, has been looking closely, moving too slowly in my view uh, on what you refer to rightly as beneficial ownership, trying to figure out who the real owner of a, of a company is uh, so that we can really enforce, better enforce our anti-money anti laundering laws uh, because uh, we know a lot of U.S. companies that have been used as conduits uh, for uh, Russian oligarchs and others to uh, dump their ill-gotten gains. Uh, so uh, we are working uh, on that legislation. As you indicated, uh, when it comes to sort of uh, economic um, issues and, and malign actions, uh, there are other actors as well. I mean, we didn't talk about the other major country that's identified in the national defense strategy, uh, which is China. Uh, China's obviously had a very aggressive campaign over the years uh, to essentially um, hijack a lot of U.S. technology. The Congress did uh, last year, earlier this year uh, pass an upgrade to what we call the CFIUS uh, legislation, uh, which uh, deals with the review of proposed foreign investments in uh, strategic assets of the United States or near defense installations, other things like that, in order to better uh, screen uh, the nature of certain foreign investments. It also uh, tightened up our, uh, our Arms Export uh, Control Act to make sure that uh, we are not exporting uh, very sensitive technology overseas. That's not to say that uh, you know, companies shouldn't be able to uh, export uh, you know, advanced technology, but we should take a very close look at it to see uh, if it can be uh, exploited in a way that hurts our national security interests. So um, beneficial ownership, strengthening CFIUS, uh, these are some of the things, some of the tools uh, that we're, we're looking at. Before I leave the bucket of malign influence, um, I'm going to be a bit of a contrarian. And so some of the criticism I've heard about the Deter Act. So mm -hmm. what happens if, if that very strong message isn't enough? The U.S. government uh, director of national touch says, yes, there was in fact interference. And this legislation comes into effect, which is, is absolutely really uh, stinging uh, sanctions. Concerns yeah. about that this is raising this to a level where we're not entirely sure how Russia will respond or whether our companies are ready for this type of, you know, in worst case scenario. That's some yeah. of the criticism so, I have heard. So two things. One, look, in my view, if we have real you know, material interference in our elections, we need to have a very strong response. I mean, if you think about our whole system, the integrity of our democracy relies on people having confidence in the outcome. And if people begin to question the confidence of the outcome of the U.S. election, uh, it undermines the core of our democracy. So number one, um, you know, my view is this is an overriding uh, U.S. national security uh, interest. Um, it's about who we are, so that's, that's the first. Second, uh, I understand you know, the tension. The challenge with sanctions, uh, excuse me, the challenge with deterrence is of course, you'll, you're more likely to deter the higher the penalty. You know, we have mutual assured destruction uh, as a sort of deterrent strategy for a long time uh, in the nuclear realm. Uh, and so, on the one hand, you want to make sure the costs are very high. On the other hand, therefore, you want to make sure the trigger is not too low. So one of the things we struggled with in the Deter Act a little bit is how you define interference, right? Because, uh, you know, obviously, if someone going in and electronically chaining the results is like huge interference, uh, but there are also things that, you know, were done by 
you know, with respect to uh, social media. Um, and so we, we're trying to calibrate what the trigger uh, would be. I will also say, because of the concerns that have been raised, we have actually, uh, we, we reduced uh, some of the sanctions impact. If you look at the most recent version of the bill, uh, we've scaled back uh, some of those sanctions. We've also not made all of them automatic. They're now subject to national security waivers, which again, in my view, reduces the deterrent uh, benefit of it, but it addresses the issue that you raised if deterrence fails uh, in this case, um, maybe making sure you better calibrate the response. Again, there's obvious, I mean, I think everyone can see there's obviously a, balance a, a balancing uh, there between maximizing the deterrent aspect but minimizing the sort of negative uh, blowback uh, if deterrence fails. I, uh, before I leave the subject, I, I just I can't let rest. Uh, President Putin was quoted yesterday as saying, quote, thank God no one is accusing us, meaning Russia, of interfering in the U.S. elections anymore. Now they are accusing Ukraine. We can fully put that to bed with your full remarks, but I want to give you just another opportunity to yeah. go ahead. So let's that. just put this to bed. This is a <laughs> nonsense theory. This is a conspiracy theory. There's absolutely zero basis for this. And uh, I think Fiona Hill, who, of course, worked in this administration in the National Security Council is expected today uh, just to put the nail in the coffin. Now, that doesn't mean these conspiracy theories don't keep going on. I mean, they keep going on all over the place, including uh, from some on Capitol Hill. But this is a nonsense theory. And just to underscore the point, we all know the following. Number one, all of our U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, even after they were led by people appointed by this president, reiterated and underscored the fact that Russia had interfered in the 2016 election. Second, the bipartisan uh, Senate Intelligence Committee report reached the same conclusion. And third, just within the last two weeks, our uh, intelligence community, again, um, led by people appointed by this president, have warned that they expect Russia to interfere in our elections again, along with some other countries they mentioned, but Russia being the leading uh, the leading uh, prospect for interference. So this, the, these are, again, all of our intelligence agencies, plus the FBI uh, and others, they are telling us uh, that this will happen again if we don't do more to deter. So when you're getting that kind of warning, it is gross negligence and worse for the United States Congress and this administration not to pass something like the Deter Act, however we end up uh, you know, balancing those equities. Well, you travel on congressional delegations and visit uh, other European Union capitals. Are, how can we strengthen transatlantic cooperations, whether that's on sanctions, whether that's on the malign influence? Europe is so critical. Yes. They're the front lines for this. I'd love your ideas on how we can strengthen that cooperation, and maybe we can incorporate some of that conversation. Sure. Well, we I, mean, I mean, the first is to really keep open lines of communication. Uh, and as I mentioned, I think Congress in the last uh, three years uh, has reopened some of the previous vehicles it had. I mean, the NATO Observer Group being one. We had a, a record large congressional delegation to the Munich Conference That's right. uh, this year, the largest ever bipartisan, uh, you know, Senator. Maybe that delegation could go to Kiev after I, Munich. That's a, that is, is that an idea? we should talk about okay, that. That's we should an talk idea. about going to Kiev. Um, so, but I think, uh, and there are other forums, obviously, uh, CSCE and others. So. But I, I do think it's a question of you know, 
of communication, but you know, it, it, it on, will only work to strengthen our uh, unity if everyone's on the same page uh, on these issues. I do think coordinating sanctions is really important. Uh, obviously, Europe also has an interest in uh, preventing, deterring, dealing with um, Russian interference in their elections. Uh, also, uh, addressing various energy security issues in addition to uh, military uh, security issues. So before I uh, unleash our audience, it's going to be, I'm sure, lots of great questions. I want to turn to some of the regional implications of, of Russia's policy. And under the heading of nature abhors a vacuum, um, we are continuing to see very strong Russian-Turkish cooperation. You mentioned it in the energy yep. sphere with Turkstream. And I know you've been particularly concerned about uh, Turkey's major Russian military purchase of the S-400s, um, but uh, we're seeing in the decision on northern Syria this growing rapprochement. Yes. Turkey is such a strategically important country to, the, to NATO, yes. to the transatlantic space. It has been a very challenging ally. It has always been a very challenging ally, but maybe this time feels a little different to me, that we are really in, in jeopardy of, of having Turkey move out of a Euro-Atlantic sphere on yes. its own volition and perhaps through lots of mistakes that, that uh, both the EU and the US have, have made. I'd love your yep. thoughts on the Russia-Turkey dynamic. You've been a very strong voice in that space. Uh, yes, and uh, you have a very good program here on uh, Turkey. Thank you very much. I was just talking to Bulent Aliriz. I don't know if he's here and others. So let me state at the beginning that um, my view is that historically Turkey has been a very important NATO partner and that um, the United States would like to see Turkey remain in NATO. Uh, but Turkey's actions seem to be testing whether it wants to be in NATO. And my view is that as it uh, does things like purchase the S-400, we can't go cowering in the corner and saying, oh, we gotta let you do this, otherwise you're gonna really leave NATO. I mean, look, NATO was first established, as everybody knows, uh, to counter the then Soviet Union. Uh, and NATO still uh, obviously is an important uh, military alliance to counter aggression. So how does it make sense for a major NATO partner to purchase an advanced Russian air defense system where our military experts have testified repeatedly would put at risk NATO pilots and NATO national security? And so uh, the Congress, and I, was, I pushed this hard, it was my amendment, um, along with Lindsey Graham a number of years ago, we said, based on the testimony of our own military experts, we will not provide the F-35 to Turkey, which we plan to do as a NATO ally, but we won't provide it if you're gonna get the S-400 because it's pretty clear it would put at risk that technology. Uh, and so we did take that step and you know, we are disengaging from Turkey's co-production a part of the F-35. Uh, Turkey's still proceeding with the S-400, they've taken delivery of the S-400. Congress also passed sanctions as part of the, we, you know, we passed the CATSA sanctions, uh, which trigger other penalties for a country uh, that takes an advanced major uh, you know, weapons delivery from Russia. And so uh, that's why many of us have been pushing this administration, this president, 
to, to do something, because failure to do something, again, <laughs> sends the wrong signal. So while all this is going on, uh, Turkey then decides to attack our Syrian Kurdish allies. Now, this is, this is largely, uh, unfortunately, our own doing. This is an own goal, because we know that a phone call took place between uh, you know, Erdogan and, and Trump, and after both parties hung up, the United States withdrew some of its, the special forces in this particular region along the Syrian-Turkish border. Uh, that you know, was a deterrent to Russian uh, forces uh, going across. And you know, we got off the phone. They got off the phone. You know, President Trump tweets that we're withdrawing our, our forces. And obviously, Erdogan said, green light, going in. And in the process, betrayed our key partner in the fight against ISIS, uh, a partner uh, that has lost over 11,000 soldiers. And so what signal does that send, uh, not just in the region, but around the world? It says that the United States uh, will throw an ally that's been on the cutting edge of our fight against ISIS under the bus, and in the process, give Russia even more influence in Syria. Now, obviously, Russia already was a major player in Syria, but they did not have a footprint in, in northeastern Syria. And the US, that's about one third of the territory of Syria. Uh, it's the area that, that the Syrian Kurds, the SDF, have helped clear, at least physically, of ISIS. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, you've got our Kurdish, Syrian Kurdish allies who are having to seek protection from Russia um, and from Assad. Uh, and I, I, again, just in closing with respect to Turkey, going after ISIS has never been Turkey's primary objective. Their objectives have been in the following order. Go after the Sy in Syria, go after the Syrian Kurds. Number two, go after Assad, and only third, uh, was uh, going after ISIS uh, a priority. In fact, they allowed, they turned a blind eye to lots of ISIS fighter transiting Turkey for years. So anyway, this is a major uh, blunder. Um, and unfortunately, this is our own goal. This is a, a place where uh, Russia is gaining increased leverage uh, because of a mistake, a big strategic mistake uh, made by the president. Thank you. All right, let's turn. We have some time for questions. What I'd like to do is, is bundle a few. We have microphones. Jill, I'm going to start with you. If you could please introduce yourself um, and uh, ask very crisp questions, because we want to get as many as we can before the senator has to go back to the Capitol. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Jill Doherty with uh, the Wilson Center and also with Georgetown University. Um, with this um, current situation, uh, about Ukraine. How do you assess how this is going to affect President Zelensky's ability to do one of the primary things that he wants to do, which is settle Donbass? Yeah. Thank you. Well, and I just, if I may add to that, Jill, thank you, yeah. that we have on December 9th the meeting of the Normandy format, which of course is the presidents of Ukraine, Russia, the Chancellor of Germany, and the President of France. and. I have to say, I'm not sure what the outcome will be in that meeting, so we welcome your thoughts. So, uh, yes, let me, let me just say, uh, the good news, of course, is that ultimately the assistance did get delivered. It turns out it was kind of after the whistle was blown 
on everything that was happening. I remember being in a Senate Appropriations Committee uh, late in September uh, when the monies had not been released. Uh, and, you know, on a bipartisan basis, senators were calling for the release of that money. Uh, so that is the good news. The bad news, of course, is what it showed, uh, as we heard from testimony from our foreign ambassador, former ambassador and others, was that the, the priority of the administration, I should say the priority of the president, uh, was essentially to use uh, this military leverage and the leverage of an official uh, visit to the White House um, not to strengthen Ukraine, um, not to strengthen U.S. national security interests, but for these personal political goals the president has. That sends a, that sends a very, very bad signal. Uh, now that it's been exposed, you know, maybe people have to work overtime to show that uh, we're focused on uh, strategic uh, uh, interests. In terms of how it will affect Zelensky, uh, I, you know, as you, as you know, he's, he's taken some, uh, I think, reasonable steps uh, to try to engage uh, with Russia. I think, you know, we need to make sure he knows that we have his back uh, as he does this, uh, because you do not want uh, him to feel that he's got to enter into any kind of agreement that would allow, you know, for example, Russian troops to remain. Um, in Ukraine. I mean, that should be an absolute red line. Uh, how you organize um, elections in the, in the region is really important, that they be true elections and not simply engineered uh, by Putin. Uh, I, you know, I understand Macron's interest in uh, trying, uh, you know, through the, uh, you know, at the upcoming December meeting uh, to try to you know, work more closely, uh, you know, Germany, France, uh, Ukraine, and Russia to try to resolve issues. We should, you know, our goal needs to be to implement and enforce the Minsk uh, agreements. But again, this is why it's really important that we not send uh, contradictory signals. And there's no doubt, I mean, just in conclusion, there's no doubt that what's happened. Um, you know, this ridiculous blaming of Ukraine for interfering in the 2016 elections, uh, withholding of assistance and a White House visit uh, for totally unrelated demands clearly uh, undermines um, our position and strengthens uh, Putin. But uh, hopefully we, ho hopefully now that it's been exposed, we, we can maybe try to salvage something. Right, and I think there's an important transatlantic link to that because if in fact after the Normandy meeting, uh, in Paris, if there is some positive steps in the EU, or uh, certainly under uh, President Macron's uh, leadership, tries to begin to ease sanctions, and then we get out of sync between the U.S. and the EU. We just need that strong unity to make sure, again, on sanctions, we are we are lockstep with one another. For no, sure. that's right. I mean, again, uh, the sanctions, as you know, the original sanctions were put in place because of the annexation of Crimea. Uh, then there have been additional sanctions because of uh, Ukraine interference in our election. So you're right, calibrating that uh, together will be uh, Im important. I think we have a chance to take a what? Great. We'll take the two questions here, if, if I can sure. bundle two, sure. and, and we're right there. Thank yeah. you so yeah. much. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I'm Mindy Reiser. I'm vice president of an NGO called Global Peace Services. I'd like to ask you about the toolbox, and you talked about shared interests. 
well, the current administration is an obstacle here, but in terms of climate change, obviously Russia has an interest there. In terms of public health, uh, epidemic spread, what can we do there, and what do you think the Congress can do to encourage at least some people, the administration, to support these kind of outreach efforts? Thank you. If you can just pass it to the okay. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intel analyst and a former diplomat. Last year, um, uh, Putin announced that they were developing a basically large torpedo, nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed, that could roam the seas and be brought into any harbor at will. I expected us to stand up and say, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. Um, isn't it time for us to say, no, it's not going to happen. If it happens, we will sanction the following things. And if we find one of these things at sea, we will destroy it, even in peacetime. Isn't it time to make a forward position on that particular weapon? So uh, let me take both of those uh, questions. First, in uh, terms of looking for areas of mutually beneficial cooperation, um, I agree that we should con explore those areas. We, we did that even throughout the Cold War period. I, I will say that continued interference in our elections just makes all of that really difficult, right? I mean, that, that, that is, you know, we understand sort of competition around the world, and we, you know, I, uh, but interfering in our elections, uh, again, it, it just makes some of these other areas of cooperation uh, more difficult. As I, as I said, uh, we, we, there are areas where we obviously have mutual interests, climate change you mentioned, health issues, um, and obviously nuclear, in my view, nuclear arms control, which gets me to the other uh, issue. So I think, uh, you know, there's no doubt that, you know, Russia is developing some of these other weapon systems. Um, I think they've acknowledged that not that system, but some of their other uh, systems that they've been developing actually do fall under the new, not, new START uh, constraints. Um, and I think it's again, really important that we extend New START. It's a five-year agreement, and then we can also uh, use that time to address some of these other systems that uh, Russia is developing um, and planning to deploy. My understanding of the nuclear-powered cruise missile uh, is that uh, it's still a long ways away. I think they experienced some setbacks in their program recently with the explosion. Uh, that's not to say we, this, this in, in my view, this is actually why we should be engaging Russia in these talks. You know, if you're not successful at including that in, you know, a future nuclear arms agreement um, or arms control agreement, uh, then you can look at some of these other uh, approaches that you're talking about. But the first step um, is to see if we can reach an agreement, as we have been able to do in the past, even at the height of the Cold War. Uh, to constrain some of these, because you know it's not in their interest for the United States to then develop its own counter systems. I mean, it's costly uh, to both sides in terms of dollars um, and instability. So uh, I, this is why this is an area of obviously mutual interest, um, you know, for Russia and the United States, and, and for our NATO partners, and for the whole world, um, that we that we have we uh, contain that competition in a way that doesn't create instability. So I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm focused as well on the development of this new system. I think it is years out, and I think the first thing to do is get back to the 
negotiating table when it comes to arms control. I mean, uh, I, as I said, I think, you know, essentially legally walking away from the INF uh, agreement and not engaging on New START negotiations is, is to our, it, it's a, it's, it, it undermines our own strategic interests. I would even add space to that. The yeah. space-based uh, weapons also true. That's in very China true. has to be part of that conversation as well. Yeah, so China, look, in my view, uh, and we didn't talk about China today, yeah. of course. We'll have to have you back and but, we'll talk about um, China. We, there's, a, there's obviously a lot to talk about there. In my, so China currently, their, their nuclear arsenal is one-tenth the size of the United States and Russia. That is, in my view, not a good reason uh, not to extend New START for five years. Um, during that period, yeah, we should begin to engage China more on these, in these discussions. Uh, you know, China was also used as an excuse for, you know, legally walking away from the INF Treaty. But I can tell you, uh, just like it's difficult to, will be difficult to get some of our partners in Europe to deploy, um, you know, INF missiles there, South Korea and Japan have already made it quite clear that they're not interested in deploying uh, INF missiles right now. And so we're talking about Guam. Uh, anyway, I, I, so China is a big part of this going forward, but it is, it is right now being used, in my view, as an excuse by some uh, not to pursue our strategic uh, nuclear arms control interests with Russia. Senator, thank you so much. Thank you, number one, for spending your time with us this morning. We know the schedule is crazy for your comprehensive remarks, for your leadership in this entire space, whether it's malign influence, whether it's on arms control, the Turkey relationship, we thank you. Thank you for your support for the men and women who serve our country every day, whether that's in the military or in the foreign service or a great civil service. We thank you for that, uh, that shout out. I think they needed that shout out this thank week. You. And before I ask my audience to warmly thank you, I just want to give one programming note. We're going to go into a coffee break, change the setup here, and come back, and that'll allow us to get Senator Van Hollen back to his office. But with your warm applause, please join me in thanking <laughs> thank Senator you. Van Hollen. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Gentlemen, if you could please take your seat. <laughs> I'd like to explain this day. Um, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And uh, as we have a very late lunch today, we have frequent coffee breaks, so I guess the, the mother in me is telling you to make sure you keep uh, those coffee breaks and get some nibbles because lunch isn't coming for a little while, but uh, we thank you all for coming in. Um, Ernest was extremely gracious because we had Senator Van Hollen um, uh, that I, uh, we, we went directly to his remarks and we did not uh, allow Ernest to, to describe for you the, the wonderful work of the Center for Polish Russian Dialogue and Understanding. Ernest has been the, uh, the director of the CPRDU since 2016, but we've known each other for a very long time uh, as a former uh, deputy director in the Polish Institute for International Affairs, PISM. He is uh, a managing editor of uh, Europa, the Russian language quarterly on European affairs. He's an editor chief. He's just an all around fantastic colleague who's just been a wonderful partner with CSIS in this journey. And every year it is a journey. Um, and I just wanted to uh, be able to publicly thank our colleagues from CPRDU that support this annual forum and give Ernest a chance to give you a few minutes of what the center is doing before he rolls into this awesome, awesome panel. So again, thank you for this morning and, and graciously having that little break while we reset after Senator Van Hollen. And Ernest, over to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heather. Uh, indeed, it's been a sheer pleasure to have this partnership, uh, which is actually almost as old as the center as such. So that's sort of one of the longest um, joint projects that we have with anyone. So I really appreciate that, that we can on annual basis uh, meet here in Washington DC and talk Russia in general. Uh, and center is a, uh, a peculiar institution. We are a state institution working on the auspices of Minister of Culture. Nonetheless, we have quite, let's say, a complex um, uh, list of tasks which actually start from scientific research that we do on Polish-Russian, mostly historical issues, but not only. Uh, then through conferences, seminars, meetings like this, organized in Poland, in Russia, in Ukraine, and here in the US, uh, publishing, and, and also we call it soft projects like providing scholarships for Russian researchers interested in doing some um, uh, research on Polish-Russian relations, providing grants for organization doing youth exchanges between Poland and Russia. So we try to work to develop this social fabric uh, um, between Poland and Russia. And also we take care about the development of Russian civil society. We try to be caref carefully watch the developments and to reach out also to those who currently are uh, uh, are not contributing uh, to the developments in the country, but they will try to uh, change Russia as it is now into something else. Uh, and indeed, it is striking how different our conversations were about um, with Russians and about Russia seven years ago when we started them, and when, when 
and uh, how they look now. And of course, the reasons are obvious. There's no need to repeat them. Um, Crimean crime, Donbass, MH17, Scripple case, and many, many others, all those issues pulled Russia-Western relations down the slippery slope. And although it is not a free fall, uh, but the direction has been quite solid, uh, at least as it seems for today as well. Uh, a lot of people think how to get out of this mess, and that is understandable. Um, but uh, I would say there is a sort of, uh, there are some efforts to turn back time as well and to remove dust from old concepts of great power management, concepts of power, spheres of influence, and similar, to refurbish them a bit, reframe, rebrand, and sell onto the market once again as a new kinds of solutions for the uh, problems that we are facing today. Uh, and some of those ideas heavily rely, rely on the unfortunate concept that I'm also, I was used to use, unfortunately, from time to time, a concept that I call in-betweenness. I mean, we uh, tend to um, uh, put into the single basket countries like Ukraine, Belarus, Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and, uh, uh, and put them under, under common denominator of being in-between two big animals, the West and Russia, and assuming that we have to find a, a joint solution for all of them. Um, and this is a quite, uh, this reframing of debate is, uh, is a risky one because effectively it changes the sources of the tensions that we, um, uh, that are really there. Because then Russian trans transgressions of international law, um, Incur the customer and treaty-based are somehow transformed into justified response to Western alleged in, uh, in intrusions. So the, then the major source of problems suddenly moves from those who are responsible to those who are in between and actually, actually uh, uh, it seems like even today when I'm watching closely what is happening here in, in Washington, I see this kind of narrative as well, that suddenly Ukraine became a sort of the place where all the problems of today emerged. But this is not true. Uh, and being a Pole, I'm, and probably many of my compatriots, uh, we are sensitive, even if not oversensitive, to that kind of uh, thinking that we, um, uh, and such political recipes that we should um, somehow deny agencies, agency to the small and medium countries and, and, and make them objects of kinds of grand scheme of things uh, and dressed in various explanations. Uh, and since we are so sensitive, then we thought that maybe, yes, this is transatlantic forum on Russia, but definitely if you, if you, want, if you want to analyze the, the, the developments that we see, we need to take into account and seriously the perspectives of the countries that I mentioned. Um, we cannot take up all of them today, but nonetheless, it, these meeting, this um, eighth uh, forum is about also mm, uh, injecting the perspectives of those countries into the debate. So because any serious an analysis of West-Russian relations, any efforts to introduce stability and peace into the region, uh, I think uh, uh, requires uh, that kind of um, uh, move. And 
And that is why, actually, uh, let me now uh, get directly to the panel, because I have a privilege to, to moderate uh, this, the, first, the first panel, which we entitled five years after the annexation of Crimea and um, military incursion into Donbass. Where does the transatlantic, transatlantic community go from here? Uh, actually, the, the question is most, more important than the first sentence, because this is what we want to try to do, to look a bit into the future. And I have the privilege to, to moderate uh, the excellent group of experts. Let me introduce them briefly. I'm very happy that I can be, be they jo joined us today. Um, Maria Snegovaya, postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and adjunct fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Alina Polyakova is the founding director of the Project on Global Democracy and Emerging Technology and a fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. Jonathan Katz, a senior fellow um, with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, based here in the Washington, formerly deputy assistant administrator in the European Eurasia Bureau at USAID. And Pavel Koval, uh, who actually celebrates today another anniversary, uh, because he, he, he told me uh, after uh, intro your introduction that this is, there is a sixth anniversary of the first Western politician, actually, uh, uh, speaking to Maidan in Ukraine. Yes, Pavel used to be a head of EU-Ukraine commission, representing the European Parliament at that time, yes. Oh, and, uh, European Parliament, yes. And he was the first, actually, who addressed uh, the Ukrainians and, uh, during the, the Revolution of Dignity. Uh, but he used to be a think tanker, then turned into a politician, was the deputy foreign minister of, of Republic of Poland, then turned again into a scholar, and this year, actually, he uh, made another transformation. He turned again into a politician and was elected to the Polish parliament just a couple of weeks ago. And he's also vice chairman of Foreign Affairs Committee of the parliament. So uh, an excellent, excellent group of uh, people. Uh, I'm putting a, a stop here. We are interested in conversation, not my moment, but I started from a monologue, so I'm sorry for that. Uh, we will do this this way that I will ask a question to each and every panelist. We will, they will have five to seven minutes of the kickoff remarks. And then uh, either I will do some additional commentaries or I will just simply pass the floor to you to have this more dynamic debate. Uh, since the second panel covers Georgia, Moldova, and, um, uh, and Belarus, we will stick here to Russia, Ukraine, and the West. And we will move to other topics in the in the second panel. Um, so I would like to start with Maria. And if you, could, uh, if you could provide us with some thoughts on actually what we call post-Crimean dynamics in Russia, and how does it look today, and um, what are the links actually between the evolution that we can observe within Russia, because Russia is not, uh, it's not uh, also, um, is also in certain motion, uh, a link between this and, uh, and the foreign policy. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's a big honor to be here today. Uh, and of course, a privilege uh, to be the first one uh, to start the discussion. Uh, so looking at uh, five years of, in Russia after the Crimea annexation, I would sum it up, the current, uh, I would sum up uh, the current dynamic as the observed economic stagnation, the continuing public uh, erosion of public trust in the government, 
and against this backdrop, backdrop intensifying repressions of the government, of the Kremlin, against the elites and the uh, Russian people in an effort to uh, essentially ensure this continuing support. Uh, so looking at the, so I'm going to split my uh, discussion today into two uh, parts. Uh, the first one is going to be about the economic impact of the uh, Crimea, and next I will uh, switch into political and foreign policy implications of this dynamic. Uh, so first, of course, uh, as a result of the Crimea annexation, um, the biggest uh, impact that Russia witnessed economically was the imposition of the sanctions. Uh, the uh, sanctions are generally, you know, uh, divided into three different types. Uh, the individual ones, the sectorial, uh, the so-called SSI, um, technological sanctions, I'm sorry. And uh, finally, uh, the financial sanctions that include the uh, ban on the, the loan freezes and putting companies on the SDN list. Uh, which ones proved, proved to be most influential uh, for Russia's economic uh, dynamic? Uh, so, so far, I think it's pretty, uh, we can pretty confidently say that the uh, financial sanctions, so either the loan freezes uh, that Russia witnessed for about two years under Obama administration, or putting the companies on the SDN list, the most uh, um, uh, famous example of that being Putin, uh, Alec Deribaskas, uh, EN Plus, and Rusal on SDN list, tend to really uh, give a serious blow to the Russian economy. Uh, those were felt quite substantively, um, extremely uh, accelerated the FDI outflow that's pretty high already, and contributed to the GDP, uh, long-term GDP decline, which is, or rather, global level of GDP uh, growth as opposed to what it would have been uh, without sanctions. So different uh, estimates, different analysts differ to what extent the sanctions uh, influence the dynamic of the GDP, but we can probably say right now Russia's GDP is lower from 3 to 6, 7 percent from as, as compared to what it would have been uh, with, without uh, sanctions. So this dynamic is quite um, uh, serious. Most importantly, it translates into a long-term decline of real disposable incomes of the Russian people. And subsequently, that actually uh, forced, um, accelerates the decline in support of the Russian authorities, which I'm going to uh, jump to in a couple of seconds. Uh, there's actually an estimate by uh, Daniel Ahn from the State Department uh, who analyzed what happens to the Russian companies once they're put on the SDN list. And there's about uh, 270 companies total on this and SDN list under the uh, EU and US sanctions. Uh, so what he uh, demonstrates in his very interesting analysis is that after a Russian company gets on, on this list, it witnesses in the um, uh, coming months a 3% increase in the likelihood of bankruptcy, a quarter decline of operating revenue, uh, decline in to total asset valuation by half, and a decline in the number of employees by one-third. Uh, they, however, point out in this analysis that the Russian government actually is eager to um, back uh, the companies that witnessed, uh, that, that are put on the SDN list. Specifically, many of these strategically important companies are um, supported by the state. And when the state funds are provided, uh, the companies actually, the effect of the sanctions tends to be eliminated. But nonetheless, the effect is quite significant. Um, we also know that the Russian government is quite aware of this effect. Um, since um, last April, uh, once uh, Deripaska's companies, uh, Deripaska and Vexelberg, have been put on the SDN list, 
uh, we actually saw the quite substantive change in the rhetoric of the Russian authorities. If before, especially right after Crimea annexation, the Russian uh, officials would, you know, mockingly argue that the Russians, uh, the sanctions are completely not important, you know, we are going to eat snow or do all kinds of things because we're Russians, you know, we do not uh, respond to economic stimuli like other people do. Uh, we see that rhetoric actually uh, changed dramatically since last April. Uh, recently, uh, even Putin himself started acknowledging the impact of sanctions. So just as uh, recently as November 14th, during the BRIC summit, he actually argued himself that, uh, in fact, Russia's GDP growth is lower than what is desired and blamed it on the general economic situation in the world and unilateral sanctions. This is something new because we haven't really seen uh, Putin being as open about this uh, before. Now, why are the Russian authorities increasingly concerned about the sanctions? And I would argue is that they see that the economic dynamic is already directly influencing the authorities' uh, support. Uh, so you know that uh, as a result of the sanction, uh, I'm sorry, as a result of the Crimean annexation originally, uh, originally Putin's support has witnessed a major boost. So it origin, uh, initially jumped by 66% after Crimean annexation and lately even rose up to 76% according to different polling agencies. Uh, after, in the recent years, however, in two, three recent years, after all this uh, dynamic has been accumulating, especially the decline in the real disposable incomes of the Russian population, we actually see Putin's support down uh, to around slightly above 50%, actually. It's actually has been gr growing a little bit in the recent months, but in general, the dynamic is not good. Uh, also, Putin's approval in Russia is this universal kind of um, reflection of legitimacy of the system. And once Putin's approval falls, it actually tends to draw back the approval for major Russian institutions and major Russian uh, public politicians as well. So we saw those down as well. Uh, just the Vata poll that has just been released a couple of uh, days ago said that uh, right now the amount of uh, Russians who empathize with Putin is down to 24% as opposed to 32% last year. So we see this dynamic actually continues. Now, what does it tell us in terms of uh, Putin's foreign policy? How do Russians feel about you know, this continuing um, uh, contest uh, with the West? And do they support uh, the ongoing tensions with the United States? And the most important question is to what extent the Kremlin has the capacity to convert the current tensions with the West into support for the authorities. So the answer of that, on that, most importantly, is that, in fact, Russian, the Kremlin does not have a lot of capacity to boost their, its support using this rally around the flag effect. As a matter of fact, a, multiple num uh, a number of studies uh, that focuses specifically on the relationship between the approval of the authorities and perception of the economic situation in the country show that the Russians are relatively normal and rational when it comes to sociotropic valuations. So those Russians who perceive the economy is doing worse tend to really decrease their approval for the Russian authorities. This has been the case before Crimea. This has been the case after Crimea. Crimea has not changed that. Uh, what Crimea did, though, it did 
increase the salience of alternative um, elements of, foreign, of policy, such as invading other countries. Uh, however, in the recent years, what we observe is that Russians are not really as happy about this Russia being so military powerful on the world stage. I personally just launched recently a survey uh, essentially showing some, Rus uh, some of the re respondents the information about the declining or worsening economic situation, and then ask them uh, a couple of questions that are commonly asked uh, when it comes to Russia's militaristic, you know, assertive foreign policy. Like, would you rather Russia was a military strong power, but maybe not economically as mighty? Or do you think it's uh, important to keep investing into defense budget, even if it comes at the expense of the economic development? And most importantly, do you think Russia still is a great power? And what I find is a very uh, consistent uh, finding is that those Russians who view economy as doing worse tend to actually emphasize the economic development. They, they don't think there's got to be more investment into defense budget at the expense of the economy. They think that Russia must be economically powerful rather than military strong first and foremost. And most importantly, they do not think Russia is as of a great power anymore. Uh, this again is consistent with the previous literature. What it tells us is that against uh, this dynamic, the so-called militaristic narratives that the Kremlin has been using in the past are not going to be as important. Other sociological polls actually confirmed these findings. Uh, last year, for example, um, last December, Levada, uh, the independent Poland agency, Levada Center, published a result that showed a continuous, continuing fatigue of Russians with this ongoing militarization. Uh, they actually, um, the increasing number of the Russians, I think they jumped by t t 10, 15% uh, from 2017 to 2018, actually believe that Russia needs to stop this isolation and try to eliminate the sanctions and try to improve uh, the relationships uh, with the West. Uh, in August 2019, positive attitudes towards the U.S., for example, have been up uh, to uh, by about 15% from 25 to 42% from January 2018 to August 2018. So what it shows us, uh, to sum it up, is that the capacity of the Kremlin to use assertive militaristic narratives and assertive foreign policy in an effort to boost its domestic support is very limited. It is very unlikely that Russians are going to really be as supportive of, you know, for example, incursion into Belarus as they were of uh, Crimean um, annexation and Ukrainian adventure. The Russian government also understands the negative effects of the sanctions on the economic development, as has been demonstrated by continuous lobbying effort of the Kremlin to try to remove them in Europe and the United States. And I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much. A lot of, a lot of interesting details in such a short time. Thank you. And a lot of food for thought and for questions. Alina, uh, let's move west and uh, focus on on uh, something that was quite unexpected five years ago. I mean, the consensus between EU and US when it comes to sanctions, it was surprising uh, for us and for Russia as well. But we are seemingly going to back to normal where there are more tensions than, than uh, agreements. So could you please elaborate more on where we are when it comes to transatlantic relations, uh, uh, having also Normandy for, uh, format uh, meeting in a couple of weeks from now? 
Yes, yeah, so thank you, Ernest, and thank you, Maria, for setting the, the stage for us in the Russian context. Um, it is important to remember that we do still have a coordinated sanctions policy. I think it's easy to forget that, uh, but there is still an EU-US coordinated sanctions policy um, on Russia because of its actions against Ukraine. And you know, being in Washington, I think every six months as the sanctions are being renewed in, in Europe, uh, there's a constant panic, oh no, the Italians or uh, the Austrians or the Hungarians or whoever else are going to veto it this time, but we really haven't seen that. So we've seen this uh, now very long consensus of five years um, on the sanctions policy. Um, of course, the US has also implemented sole unilateral policies um, on the sanctions front. Uh, Maria alluded to that as well. Um, but we've also coordinated since then, specifically when it came to the expulsions that we coordinated um, in response to the Skripal attack, uh, and we coordinated um, on the designations following the Russian um, activities in the Kerch Strait uh, last fall. So I think there's still good coordination basis there, but I think certainly there's no denying that uh, we are in a very tense and divisive moment in the transatlantic relationship, um, and Ukraine seems to be at the center of this in more ways than one. Um, I will uh, save those comments for later. I think we'll have a discussion about what uh, U.S. policy and Ukraine going forward might look like, given where we are today in our own politics. Uh, but just to make a couple of uh, quick points on, on the Western European dynamics and what that might mean. So, um, you know, since Zelensky took office, uh, he basically ran, if you can say he ran on anything, he ran on a peace agenda or a no more war agenda. Um, and that was basically his main rail railing call during the campaign. And so as he has taken office, there have been some positive signs. I mean, one, of course, has been the very symbolic but important prisoner exchange. Uh, that was arranged quite early in the Zelensky uh, administration. Um, and more recently, uh, we've had the OSC confirmation of a disengagement of forces uh, from the Russian side and the Ukrainian side on the line of contact, which, of course, has set up set the way for the December 9th meeting, which is the first Normandy meeting in three years, as, as Heather mentioned earlier as well. And I'll get back to our expectations for that. Um, but I would say those are mainly the, the only positive signs I see, that we might get some movement on the Donbass in, in the Ukraine-Russia relationship. Obviously, the biggest problem I see in terms of the negative signs is the absence of the United States. Uh, with the previous administration, we had the uh, channel between Assistant Secretary, then Assistant Secretary Newland and Surkov. That channel was supposed to be taken over by Ambassador Volker. Um, it was, but then quickly fell apart, it seemed. And there really hasn't been any movement on the Minsk process uh, since then. Obviously, now we don't have an envoy for Ukraine in the United States. And so I think given our politics, that means we're going to have less and less engagement from the United States in this process. And that I find uh, very, very concerning. Um, I think some of the other negative signs I see is the reemergence uh, of the so-called Steinmeier formula. Uh, when it comes to the sequencing of the Minsk agreements. Um, and the Ukrainians have said in a couple of official statements now uh, from Zelensky's um, cabinet that they will hold elections in the Donbass um, in the spring. It's unclear what that means. Obviously, you cannot, you cannot hold free and fair elections when you can't have international observers. Um, and in an open military conflict, which is what is happening in the Donbass today. Uh, but the fact that they have agreed to that uh, before the removal of arms, it seems like, um, although there's a lot of vagueness and ambiguity on that, um, I think is, is also problematic for the actual reality of implementing such elections in the current context. Um, 
And now panning out a little bit to some of the Western European dynamics that I find concerning um, is, of course, Macron's recent commentary and also, I would say, a sort of predictable uh, pivot towards Russia, which um, you know we saw very early on. Macron was, one, I think, I believe, the only Western European leader to early on attend the St. Petersburg St. Petersburg Economic Forum um, uh, that was boycotted um, basically by every European leader except him, where he talked a great deal about increased economic cooperation between uh, Russia. Um, and France, uh, Russia, and Europe in the context of there still being sanctions on Russia uh, from the European Union, which seem to go directly against broader European policy. And I don't have to repeat, I think everybody saw Macron's more recent interview in The Economist and some of his con uh, um, uh, comments regarding NATO especially, um, but that has followed on, uh, you say, unilateral French policy uh, led by the Elysee, it seems, and not coordinated with other European partners, and potentially not even coordinated within um, the government bureaucracy in France uh, to pursue some sort of pivot to Russia, the swarming of relations uh, that looks a lot like a reset, and we all know how well resets tend to go uh, from our own experience here in the United States. Um, and so I think this policy from the Elysee specifically has been incredibly divisive at the European level, and certainly Germany has not been on board with this. Um, and we saw uh, von der Leyen uh, make public comments regarding the veto um, that France issued against um, continued EU accession talks for uh, Albania and North Macedonia, which is now, they're walking that back a little bit, but I think in terms of optics, that was a really uh, bad uh, idea to do that, and then to make the comments on NATO, and then to pursue the Russia reset all at the same time. Um, and so we see that as Germany kind of takes a back seat at the European level in terms of shaping EU policy, France is taking this leading role, uh, and I will say that Macron's analysis of the problem um, in the transatlantic relationship is not incorrect. If you read what he says in his analysis of the problem that we face, but the conclusions he reaches, I think are deeply, deeply problematic. Um, and they're deeply problematic for Ukraine as we look ahead to December 9th. Um, and I, the last thing I'll say in terms of expectations we might see in Normandy format, um, I think we have to keep expectations incredibly low. <laughs> I mean, one, because I, I see France trying to play this great mediator role um, in, in that meeting, and I am not confident that's going to be a responsible actor role at this point, given everything that's happened. Um, I'm also concerned about Zelensky's domestic support because we've seen a series of protests um, in Kiev um, against this sort of perceived softening vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, there's a huge, I would say, amount of uh, dissent um, against uh, pursuing some sort of Steinmeier deal, whatever that is, uh, with the Russians that we now see in Ukraine. Um, so even though it's the first meeting in three years, I think it's important to restart the dialogue, uh, but I don't expect us to have any sort of uh, concrete outcomes uh, by the end of the year, certainly not. So I think I'll stop there, thank you. Thank you. I, I would like to take the one point of dimension about the absence of the U.S. and ask Jonathan about the peculiarities of U.S. domestic debates. I'm, I'm, as we say in Poland, I don't want to bring woods to the forest, actually, because you know more about those issues, purely domestic issues in the U.S. I would like to ask you about the question how they sure. actually might translate into policies when it comes to Ukraine, Russia in the coming yeah. months. First of all, thank you, and thank you to CSIS, too, for, for hosting. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more with what was said with the two previous 
speakers. <clears throat> I think you, um, when Senator Van Hollen was speaking, I think he, you could, you could just feel within his body language the tension of what's taking place right now, of course, uh, placing Ukraine at the center of, uh, you know, uh, an impeachment inquiry. We've only had a three in American history. Uh, so it, certainly it's a challenging moment, and it is impacting uh, how, uh, how U.S. policymakers and others are viewing U.S. engagement with Ukraine in the region. And I, I think what was, I, I thought when I was coming here I'd be the optimist because I, I am in some sense that there's, uh, there's a lot of concern, but there's also a lot of action happening here in Washington, events like this and others that are bringing attention to these challenges, which I think is really critical given that uh, the attention of, uh, of Washington is elsewhere. Uh, but I think it's particularly disconcerting to see some of this revisionist history on what took place in the 2016 election uh, that we're seeing, and, and, and including by some on uh, those that have been supportive of Ukraine, those that have been uh, bipartisan support in Washington for Ukraine and for engagement with countries in Eastern Europe has been, uh, has been a bedrock of U.S. foreign policy for a number of years, even when I was in the administration. Uh, Obama administration, one of the easiest things I had to do was go up to the Hill and say, hey, can we find more resources to support Ukraine? It was almost unanimous. And today I think that's a very different, potentially a di very different story uh, based on what I'm seeing as Ukraine uh, is, is, uh, is being dragged through some of this political mud. And I think it has an, also an impact as well on co other countries in the region too. Ukraine is very much an engine of how the U.S is looking at this region, democratic transformation, concerns about Russia. And so when we have this type of tension in Washington, there's a potential for it to lead to changes in that bipartisan support for Ukraine. And certainly um, how the dynamics of uh, President Trump in Ukraine, and if you're looking at a second administration, Trump administration, you certainly have to be worried that perhaps when you look at a situation like you do in Syria where the U.S. Uh, in essence, whether the words abandon Kurdish allies or partners, I hear when I'm traveling how concerned others are about this abandonment, that there'll be a phone call between somebody like Mr. Putin and uh, President Trump, and President Trump will say, you know what, you know, Ukraine has, has always been part of Russia. Um, and we've heard his past uh, pronouncements on Crimea, which I'm very happy that this, this event is focused on that because what worries me about the Normandy format and others is it doesn't often include, and it should, and it needs to include Crimea. That's also part of this, this problem and this challenge. And so absolutely, uh, policymakers in Washington are certainly thinking about Ukraine. Uh, I like to think of this too, and a number of us up here have worked on this issue. Uh, uh, you know, Ukraine uh, post Maidan, and I, th I think today might be the sixth anniversary of the beginning of Maidan, which others may have already mentioned, so I'm sorry if I'm re mentioning again, but it's just a reminder of, of, of where Ukraine has gone over the last five years. And of course, um, you know, you can judge the Poroshenko government success in terms of macroeconomic stability in the country from where they were with the support of the United States, EU, other, other European partners, the IMF, World Bank, um, or the lack of uh, real success on, on corruption. And I think that manifests itself in the Zelensky election, the fact that Ukrainians were dissatisfied. 
When you look at polling numbers now, you see that Zelensky still remains incredibly popular internally. Um, they passed, I think it was 77 new laws in the, I think it was the first two weeks of the RADA. But many of those will have to come back to the RADA for, uh, for, for a second vote. Um, and I think that's really when we'll get a better understanding of whether or not there's that real deep commitment. So the expectation here is, uh, for all of us, when I was looking and thinking about what we could offer is getting back to normal. How do you get back to focusing on what we focused on for the last five years, which is supporting engaging Ukraine, providing the type of assistance that's needed, not threatening, uh, you know, threatening uh, or to withhold assistance based on political issues, but really working together. And if we can find a way to get back to that, refocus, high-level engagement, uh, if we can think about the imperative of reforms moving forward, uh, you know, the concerns about Privat Bank coming back as an issue in Ukraine, let U.S. diplomats do their job. I mean, it's not lost in anybody that, that I think it was somebody counted, it was like nine of the leading diplomats, uh, Department of Defense, NSC staff that focus on Ukraine are all testifying. So finding a new way to get back, letting U.S. Uh, officials do their job to engage Ukraine, and I'm expecting that we're likely to see in Congress uh, more activity, I hope, uh, something along the lines. At some point, others have been talking about uh, a, a new Ukraine Support Act. I would highly support that, um, and uh, like we saw with Georgia, the U.S. can't do enough to rebalance that relationship uh, and get back to the business of supporting uh, Ukraine's Euro-Atlantic track. Thank you. One of the problems is possibly that the, the th way how we define normal is you know, in motion as well. So it's not something that is you know, stable. Pavel, uh, given your experience as a policymaker in Poland and in the EU as well, um, what do you think about the optimal, as I asked you before, and solutions for this Western policy, if there are any? And if you could also add a little bit from the Ukrainian angle, because you know the country very well. You, you for many, many years, you were involved in Ukraine affairs. Uh, how would you describe these opportunities that we face or risks? I'm, I'm not sure, uh, Ernest, that we have any optimistic scenario today. Our, uh, our uh, reference point is, of course, uh, meeting in Paris. And before, and uh, we can say that negotiations, generally, negotiation situation of Ukraine is, uh, in my opinion, weaker than five, four years ago. Before the general situation, especially uh, Ukraine, US, relations, unexpected scandal. And maybe most important was, from that point of view, uh, last declaration of, uh, made by President Macron. And I think that, that brain, uh, that uh, brain head, it's, uh, um, brain dead, it's a very important signal for us because BrainNet is the information that President Macron don't see solution of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the NATO. And uh, that's all strengthening Russian, Russia's position before meeting. Uh, 
and we have, there is no clear emphasis that we will have continuation of the policy between Poroshenko and Zelensky. Of course, formally, yes, but generally, the internal conflict uh, gives, uh, the internal conflict in uh, Ukraine gives uh, big space for the playing, for, 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 for the especially uh, um, uh, diplomatic efforts of French diplomacy uh, towards Russia. And uh, we should say that b b before, before, before Paris that no, every piece, uh, it's real peace. It could be uh, for, for Ukraine very problematic. Of course, from the point of view of Ukraine, the key question is withdrawal of Russian military from Donbas is a fundamental for Ukraine. And second one, create real conditions for free and fair elections us and we should ask about price who will pay the price for potential agreement in Paris in that, in that context European Union will the price be the withdrawal of sanctions what more will be the price and worst case scenario from from our point of view I mean international security and especially security in Central Europe. It's the position of the legal and international aspects of Russia's uh, aggressive policy in uh, Ukraine, of course, in the context of Crimea and Donbas. Every type of politics that we were made, uh, make a new opening, restart, etc., etc., etc. Of course, uh, in relations with Russia, without real assessment of the Russia's policy in Ukraine last years, it could be very big uh, mistake for 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 the uh, for the West. And we have, of course, also a few and positive scenarios for, for Ukraine, and a worst-case scenario for, 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 for Ukraine from the perspective of the future of Ukraine. I mean, strategic mistakes. And this is a real problem because President Zelensky uh, is concentrated only on the very tactic internal goals. Uh, he is is thinking in category of TV show. He wanted to inform Ukrainians that he can make peace. And in that context, the main problem is a strategic, possible strategic mistakes. Uh, first one from my point of view is a regionalization, as we say, um, regionalization of the state uh, with the real right of, let's just say, veto for Donbass on strategic issues, especially concerning of future of Ukraine. I mean, uh, for example, relations with EU, potentially development of relations with NATO, 
etc., etc. The strategic results of that will the fact that Ukraine will have a real status of the condominium, West and Russia condominium, for a long time. It could be kind of uh, formal status of condominium. And the uh, next one, element of possible worst case scenario for Ukraine after forthcoming meeting in, uh, in Paris is uh, reducing of, of possibility of control by Ukraine the strategic issues in Donbas. I mean police, I mean justice system, critical infrastructure, etc., etc. Let me summarize. Key point before Paris, uh, it's to conclude that Ukraine today has a weak negotiation position. Also West, it's weaker than a few years ago versus Russia. But today's decision, decisions shouldn't limit us for the future. This is the key before Paris, to think about future, because next few years, maybe our negotiation position will better them today. Thank you. Thank you, Pavel. Um, let me open the floor for questions and comments. Uh, I got some, but I would like you to be part of this discussion as well. So let me collect three of them, and then we'll pass the floor. So, okay, sir. And then, yeah. And please introduce yourself. Yes. Okay. Um, Piotr from England and Russia. Um, I'm quite a frequent person who likes asking questions. Um, but my, um, my father is from Akadem Gorodok, um, just outside Novosibirsk. And for the many years that I would visit and spend time, um, I found that as I got older and I began getting more of my own opinions, and should we say having more of a Western education, I found when I engaged with local people, including my own grandparents, there was quite a big increasing hostility, because there was a certain feeling that I was I don't want to say westernized in a thing, but you know, I was becoming more and more an, an actual inherent fear, perhaps resistance amongst the local populace that I'm, you know, deviating away from what could be more of a Russian input into my education. My father has a a certain amount of you know opinions. He's he left Russia when the Berlin Wall fell, um, and I'm a direct result of that. So I have a, an inherent amount of natural interest. So basically, my question relates to which I don't think is uh, emphasised enough in discussions like this um, is the idea of the rhetoric and narrative that we engage Russia with. Um, as a, just an example, um, our ex-defense minister in the UK called Gavin Williamson referred to Russia as to go away and shut up. Um, it was after the um, uh, gas, um, you know, um, uh, Salisbury event in March of 2018. Um, so I can understand it, but still for a senior minister like that to speak in that way, it's not really going to engage Russia on a constructive basis. So my question to you is basically, 
how can we as the more responsible, ideally Western alliance partners, allies, engage Russia on a, on a better, longer term, positive narrative? Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hey, thank you. Uh, Steve Winters, independent consultant. I think I'd direct this to Maria. Um, I had a chance to hear uh, maybe two or three years ago the two uh, U.S. officials who designed the original financial sanctions against Russia. And they gave a long talk and so forth and so on. And uh, speaking to one of them afterwards, he said, uh, in his opinion, the Russian, uh, the director of the Russian Central Bank responded in a technically perfect way to the sanctions uh, that we, we put on them. Uh, she was criticized at the time for burning through the reserves in order to support the ruble, but as it turned out, she actually got very strong support from Putin. And anyway, and then they sort of pulled out of it. So the question is, what, was, what were they, we in this case, what were we really hoping these sanctions would accomplish? Because apparently, it's like we tried to topple them over and she was adept enough or did everything by the book correctly uh, to, to, to ward it off. So it wasn't a disaster. Uh, but were, were we aiming for, uh, what were we aiming for? And maybe in the case of Iran, you can see something, uh, what we were aiming for, Iran today. Thank you. Any more questions? Uh, oh. Hi. Uh, the question I have for any of you to answer, I was just curious in terms of, um, you know, within your own respective families and close friends, et cetera, et cetera, uh, would, would you all consider yourselves globalists or nationalists? And this goes back to your own respective ethnic and DNA backgrounds. I'm sure most of you have had DNA tests. Uh, and since like we're sort of going back to, I, I have a feeling the world is entering 1919 hundred years ago, you know, turning the clock back and sort of like we're sort of that in terms of globalism and nationalism, we're back at that point again. Can, can, cannot be just a mixture of those features? I mean, can, do we have to be one or another? I mean, I don't know, but okay, three questions we have about engagement, the way how we credibly should or shouldn't engage Russia in this context about expectations that were uh, related to sanctions regime and the rise of nationalism, as I believe, more than who we are, how, how do we identify, identify ourselves, I mean, how those detentions related to the conflict between globalism and nationalism are now becoming more important. So, Maria, if you could start. Uh, thank you so much for quite uh unusual set of questions, shall we say. So first of all, I wanted to ask you, uh, chance to ask the question that was directly, uh, directly addressed to me. Uh, yes, it's true that Russia's macroeconomic policy has been remarkable given the circumstances. In fact, as we know, you know, this great, great book by Fiona Hill and Cliff Getty on it, uh, that uh, Putin, after his experience of perestroika in Russia, really witnessed how bad 
what kind of disastrous consequences bad macroeconomic policy leads to. So since he's come into power, his uh, you know, uh, financial and economic counselors and advisors have been absolutely excellent. You know, uh, Minister, former Minister of Economy uh, of Finance, Kudrin, actually has been even awarded for his uh, uh, policy. How about that? That is to say that possible impact of the costs or um, you know, deleterious effect of the sanctions has been uh, slightly mitigated, Doesn't, but th th that is not to say that there was no effect at all. So Russia's uh, macroeconomic team is dealing with the given circumstances to the best of its knowledge, but the problem is that what they're doing is uh, trying to stab stabilize the economy, I guess, to the best of the knowledge, they're doing quite successfully given the circumstances, but what they cannot do, given the existing constraints, is to create the boost for the economy. That means stagnation, but no growth. And that is something that the uh, macroeconomic team is struggling with. There is no external uh, resources. There is no investment to boost the growth. What they decided to do instead, again, when you don't have any external uh, revenues for, for the growth, what do you do? You use your own, right? Hence, we see the government essentially accumulating the resources, the increase in taxes, uh, raising the um, uh, retirement age in an effort to concentrate as much resource as possible, and then reinvest them into the economy through this so-called uh, Russia's um, uh, national uh, um, project. Uh, however, that, that is not the policy that is going to fundamentally resolve uh, Russians, uh, Russia's economy problems long term. That is why they are so eager to, in fact, uh, try to do something about the sanctions as we observe. And ultimately, I'm actually just back from Romania where we also had a table devoted to the sanctions impact and um, a little bit kind of tend to uh, constantly um, have this position of the sanctions optimist uh, since in Romania everybody was also like, what are we doing? Sanctions are not working. That is taken by default. Nobody is even trying, frankly, to look at the numbers. Uh, that is, of course, as you mentioned, uh, uh, relative to what we were trying to do in the first place. Somehow, the assumption is we were trying in the first place to fundamentally alternate Russian behavior. I don't think that is necessarily true. I think sanctions have a, a number of effects. The best scenario would have changed Russia's behavior. Again, that would require the sanctions to be much stronger than they were implemented in the first place. Remember that the, uh, even Russia's, uh, I'm sorry, even in the U.S. Uh, policymakers said that they will really keep the strongest ones as a threat to Russia without them them. So you really did not do anything strong in the first place, so why do you expect a strong return? But sanctions also are definitely function as a punishment for certain actions, and they think they're achieving that goal because Russia certainly, as I mentioned before, the Kremlin views that as a long-term constraint and tries to eliminate them. They also try, they also work as a long-term drag on Russia's capacity to invest its resources in hostile foreign policy. Russia is running out of the resources, and one of the reasons why we see Russia so actively using active measures abroad is because there's a, a cheap way to do its uh, foreign policy, right? Active measures are cheap, that's one of the reasons. Uh, they do them and uh, again, that is because the resources are limited. So sanctions work, but they're not working as well, they're not achieving all the goals, partly because they're not designed to be as strong in the first place. So I'll stop here. Alina. I actually just wanted to follow up on that. I completely agree with uh, Maria's analysis of how do we define success or are the sanctions quote unquote working or not. Um, I think we have to understand what the objective uh, or the aims were as they were designed and Maria's analysis I think is absolutely correct. It's about, could be about 
behavior change could be as a symbolic punishment or a set of consequences imposed for quote unquote bad behavior. And in the Russia case, this drag over time um, that, that uh, makes the stagnation that Russia has experienced because of its own internal domestic problems of its uh, inability to reform the economy is a big part of that. Um, I think the problem on the US side with sanctions is that uh, if we were aiming for behavior change, and some have made the argument that the Russians could have gone further in Ukraine had there not been a coordinated US-Europe response. That's a, hypo you know, a hypothetical. We, we can't you know, say there's a, there's a direct causality there, but I think that's not um, a completely absurd argument to make. I think there's some truth to that. Um, but if we were looking for behavior change, Maria is absolutely correct, the sanctions should have been much tougher, and two, they should have been linked to behavior changes. And so we had a set of sanctions um, initially that were tied to Minsk, which is what we're talking about here, um, that would link some behavior changes and then in exchange get the removal of sanctions. The problem we've seen since then is because CATSA is now law, um, it is basically almost impossible for the U.S. to remove those sanctions affiliated with CATSA. And there is no uh, quid pro quo, if you will, uh, for you know, behavior and then sanctions removal, which of course is uh, the kind of process the U.S. set up under the Obama administration vis-a-vis -vis Iran. And that actually did work. So sanctions can work, but we have to be very, very specific in what we're aiming to do, and they'd be very specifically linked to specific behavior changes. And right now we're in this layered mishmash of sanctions in the United States. Some are linked, some are not, some, and now they've all been codified as law, uh, which makes it impossible to remove them. Um, and we basically are in a, I think, a situation where we're gonna have sanctions in perpetuity on Russia at this point. And so this gives us questions of what does that actually mean about their long-term effectiveness. Um, just to quickly say uh, regarding engagement with Russia, what's the more productive engagement? This is a big question that all of us ask ourselves. I don't think anybody uh, that I talk to, no matter how hawkish they are on the Russia scale, uh, wants to see the relationship decline further beyond what it is today. Um, however, I think we're in a place where um, it's very difficult to see what the potential common interests are. Um, certainly on terrorism, we don't define terrorist groups in the same way. I think that's very obvious uh, based on Russian actions in the Middle East versus US actions in the Middle East. Um, the one place that I think there has been a desire to cooperate has been arms control. Um, yet the Russians have violated INF, now the US has pulled out of the INF. New START negotiations have not started, and they should have started by now if we were going to renegotiate the New START agreement. And so my concern is even that one um, area where the Russians have said we want to continue negotiations and arms control, um, even that is disappearing now. So it's very, very difficult to see, given the low trust in the relationship and the bilateral relationship, where to go from there. Um, I think I'm not, things change, so I'm hopeful that uh, it's not going to stay like this, but I think it's difficult to see, given Russia's adversarial stance vis-a-vis -vis the United States and the West more broadly, um, where they're going to be willing to actually come to the table in a real way. Yeah, I just want to add on, on sanctions, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a tool in the U.S. toolbox when, uh, in terms of foreign policy. And I think as a, you know, direct result of 9-11 and Iraq, Afghanistan, and the disinterest really, I think amongst both parties, bipartisan, and then, you know, another U.S. engagement, foreign policy engagement, um, that, that this has become a go-to. Iran was, was absolutely, I was on the Hill at the time, 
uh, you know, working with a number of people on these issues, and Iran was clearly an example of what people thought uh, sanctions could do to bring a, uh, a for some changes to to Iran, actually bringing Iran uh, to the table uh, with the United States for nuclear discussions. And so I think there's been a, a tilt, and there's a huge discussion uh, about the the impact or the use of sanctions, what works, what doesn't. It's still, you know in the toolbox, a relatively newer tool <clears throat> that's being refined. And using a scalpel versus a sledgehammer is important. And, and even on, on Russia, one of the challenges, it goes to the first question about engagement. Uh, Alina was right. <clears throat> I think there is, an, you know, it, it's, a, it's the million dollar question of, of how to engage. But sanctions themselves, have actually US sanctions, have harmed the ability for the U.S. to engage certain groups of Russians, those that receive government funding. Um, and I think this is, at times, can be unhelpful. Uh, just the use of terminology um, that, you know, U.S. sanctions, U.S. policy is directed primarily at, at, at Vladimir Putin and his actions, or that of the Kremlin, versus the Russian people. And I do think that amongst different generations, there'll be opportunities to engage with Russians, maybe those that are in their 20s, those that weren't disillusioned uh, in the 1990s about what didn't take place or about how uh, they view the West. So I would really encourage, if it was US policymakers, is to redouble our efforts, despite what you may think, to engage Russia. And finding those venues is going to be critically important. And I think on sanctions, you're seeing this as well. Um, I, I do think that you're likely to see Congress be much more reluctant. You're seeing this on the on Turkey sanctions, where you see the House of Representatives passing sanctions legislation, and you, this, you see the Senate right now holding that up out of concern that the sanctions themselves could actually have a, a, a more harm, cause more harm than good. I'm not going to go into the intricacies of that, but it's important to watch. Pavel, maybe you will try to take a question of are we in 1919? Whatever it means. Globalism versus nationalism. It was to me? Uh, no, no. I, 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 I would like to, to add a few words about uh, American sanctions policy. Last week I met uh, one French expert in uh, Paris who said to me that new uh, uh, new approach, new, new, new line of uh, Macron's policy, it's a, a result, uh, not, it's, it's not only a result of the internal situation uh, in the European Union, but also it's a result of rethinking by Macron, who is very concentrated on the uh, goal, that Macron rethinked uh, um, American policy, that uh, he make uh, conclusions, that only one, uh, that only one uh, line for 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 for, for uh, French policy, it could be kind of neo-Gaullism, yeah? that uh, uh, Macron will follow uh, American. Uh, American policy towards Russia, and he will make uh, new conclusions depend on the changing of the American policy. Uh, I'm not sure that it's 100% uh, true, but I think that 
that facts show for us how important is uh, um, consequence and the possibilities of coordination of uh, politics towards Russia um, around West countries. And the second point is a question. There is in our situation any possibilities to, to make any coordination policy of West, for example, before Paris. There is any platform of coordination. There is any real links to have uh, more consistent policy uh, uh, towards Russia before Paris. The last point, if not, we should conclude that West strategy is in real transition period, in a turning point, and we can make only one thing. We, we cannot to make any strategic concessions in Paris in that moment, because Situation in Ukraine, it's not our interest to, to have Ukraine as a kind of formal condominium, West and Russia, because this case will be used by Russia in many another situation, and because it could be, it could be in context of internal situation in Russia, kind of personal political support for Putin, personally for Putin in uh, the internal uh, fighting for the post of next president of Russia. That three points. First one, uh, West, uh, West uh, European countries will follow uh, American policy uh, towards Russia. They will make conclusions. The second one is a question about possibilities in that very difficult situation to, to make a coordination of the policy before Paris. And the third one, do not make any strategic concessions to deal only on the tactic level. Thank you. Thank you. Two fingers from Jonathan. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think that, that the London summit, which will take place before Normandy, is, a good, is really the space to, to have these conversations, and I think that they will. And in some sense, while I completely disagree with Macron's statement, and um, I know he, there's a lot of domestic politics in what he says, um, and uh, the, his, his flank on the right that he's uh, fighting off. In some sense, it's good that he did it before this summit uh, to have these types of conversations to wake people up. Uh, shouldn't be lost that, uh, that there'll be a new, uh, new NATO member state, North Macedonia, joining. Uh, that this is a consensus amongst the, uh, the NATO member states. Uh, and then uh, you'll have those other partners there as well. Uh, like Ukraine, uh, like Georgia, and in the next panel we'll talk about Georgia. So it's really important at that particular moment, and I think you will see it usually through the summit, 
sort of declarations about this. I think it's a very good moment. We just had the 70th anniversary of NATO. Um, I think uh, the, the talk about NATO being obsolete or dead is, is untrue, and you'll see that at the, the, upcoming, uh, at the upcoming summit, but it's good at a minimum. I'll give Macron uh, you know, kudos for, for pushing people uh, to think, and, uh, and I think hopefully pushing U.S. policymakers to re-engage again on the importance of that, that transatlantic connection, especially on, uh, prior to this meeting in Paris. Uh, thank you. I will give you just you a minute to think about questions. Oh, because I want I want to abuse my power as a moderator and to not to leave the one of the ans one of the questions unanswered totally about this 1919. Uh, I'm not a historian. Nonetheless, I'm quite skeptical when it comes to using any kind of historical analogies because they are are almost always, if not always, misleading. Because we try then, if you use them, we just go back to the context of 100 years ago and try to use the context to analyze the situation today. And we forget about the context that we have today. So I would say that it's not about, uh, um, I, I, would be, I would be very cautious when it comes to using any kind of analogies. Uh, uh, because they, they are not helpful when it comes to uh, real policy making of today. That's my, that's my view. And when it comes to sanctions, I, I use very simple heuristics when I try to assess, and I don't have the time for it, time for numbers. I'll just check statistically how often Russian policymakers, state media, and lobbyists mentioned that sanctions do not work. The often they do that, they, the, the, the sooner I know that yes, yes, they work on various levels. So that's, uh, that would be my answer. Heather. Well, thank you very much for a great discussion. A, a quick, I guess, two question. I, I was struck this morning by seeing the headlines of a videotape out of Serbia, which had um, a Russian agent handing over money to a Serbian uh, intelligence. Uh, and it was a, you know, obviously it's a quite a big scandal right now that's happening in Belgrade. But it, it to me, it, it, it was a very a, a vibrant reminder of the Russian infiltration that we see and the patterns, certainly big questions in Ukraine with the SBU. Uh, as well as some of the military. And so I welcome anyone on the panel to help us understand, uh, while on the one hand we're focusing on the anti-corruption effort, which is very important, and this is part of it, but there's also an, a security, intelligence, uh, interior ministry quality of this that's been very controversial, and, and leaders, uh, Ukrainian leaders have struggled against it. That's uh, part one. Question two. Uh, on the Minsk agreement, I'm wondering if we really have a question of sequencing. And this has always been, in some ways, the Minsk agreement had baked in the Ukrainians making strategic concessions before and if they would ever get control over the international border, meaning that uh, Ukraine had to take steps to the decentralization legislation, the pullback of equipment, having the elections, and only then would the Russians be required to basically respect an international border. Um, and so in some ways, it was a, a flaw in the agreement. How do we help rebalance that? Or have we, have, has the Normandy format already condemned, with very strong provocative language, uh, the Ukrainian government from having to accept those strategic concessions if they do wish to, you know, in some ways, sue for peace? Thank you. There is, a, there is one question here, the lady over there. 
Yes, Marisa Lino with RAND. A uh, very simple question. If we had, uh, slightly off topic, but if we had uh, today, next week, little green men in the Baltics, what would the transatlantic community do? Thank you. Uh, any other questions? Oh, yeah. Doug Samuelson, InfoLogix Incorporated, a little private consulting company in the D.C. area. You might want to look more, we all might want to look more at economic effects, more than we have. For example, if somebody did something, a set of sanctions that drove down the ruble in Russia, one of the things that would do is a nice transfer payment from the people who do business in and get their income in rubles to the people who control hard currency assets like oil. So it might not necessarily be in Mr. Putin's disinterest to see a devaluation of the ruble. That's one of the reasons the United States has pushed for more stable exchange rate setting and, and currency regulation worldwide. It, it's a, a way of promoting stability. It, I don't know whether anyone suggested that there's a precedent for a naval base in hostile territory. It's called Guantanamo. We have a long, the U.S. has a long-term lease with Cuba. We have a naval base there and access to utilities, electricity, water. Did anyone suggest something similar for the Crimea? Where clearly Russia's strategic interest is that naval base at Sevastopol and, and ready access to it. You want to see what would put little green men into the, into the Baltic? Think about Kaliningrad. I think we need to focus much more on economic aspects of international competition because that's the form it takes. Nobody wants to get kinetic when they can do something non-kinetic and get their objectives. Thoughts? Thank you. So let me now pass the mics to panelists. We have 12 minutes more or less, so for three minutes for each of you. Reverse order, Pavel, would you like to start now? Only, only uh, I will, I would like to add only one comment to the uh, question of, uh, of the Ukrainian concessions yeah, uh, in the process. I think that, uh, uh, of course, in every case, we have problem with different understanding of the uh, of the situation. For example, if we speak about regionalization, uh, we for sure uh, understand the term completely different than Russia because Russia wants to, to use that, mechan that mechanism as an element of uh, general control, not only control situation in Donbass, but general control of the strategic uh, uh, strategic uh, decision of Ukraine in future. They would like to uh, to uh, to have long-term guarantee that they will use that mechanism, that mechanisms. And uh, generally speaking, I think that uh, 
The problem is that we should understand that uh, we have uh, in the West and in the North Atlantic world very transition period. Uh, it's very difficult to say uh, uh, about it's very difficult to say how uh, about about the future of uh, transatlantic world today. For example, our uh, discussion yesterday about possibilities of uh, remaining uh, NATO, uh, the U.S. It's, it's, it, it would be completely uh, crazy topic a few years ago. Completely crazy. And for, for the many people in Poland, also today, it could be completely uh, crazy question. It's impossible. Let we can try to inform, for example, Polish MPs. I'm new elected MP, and saying that uh, serious people in the U.S. discussed, uh, discussing, or discussing uh, that maybe uh, Donald. New, new Donald Trump elected for the next term will will make the type of decision. It's completely crazy, and we are in a turning point. We are in transition period, and this is not a good uh, this is not a good uh, time for 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 making a. Uh, long-term concessions in context of Donbass, because it's not only about Donbass. It's about security in Central Europe. Uh, it's about legal order uh, in Central Europe. It's about future of Russia. There is, uh, there is not in our interest to, 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 to be purple in the theater of uh, Putin today. And uh, the question of decentralization of the uh, election uh, in Donbass, uh, of the another details, it's of course important, but it's only elements of the general mosaic uh, which uh, Putin wants to construct as an element of revenge for the, uh, for the situation after the uh, Cold War, for, for, for the results of the Cold War 30 years ago. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that just in terms of Donbass, there's so much at stake. Uh, both for Ukraine, uh, in terms of its transition, security, future, but this other issue, and that's why I mentioned the connection to Crimea, which is an illegal annexation, something that, that we recognize uh, both the United States and Europe um, as being criminal. Uh, and, you know, I, I think you know, the next panel is going to touch on Moldova, uh, Belarus, uh, Georgia and the signal that what takes place in the Donbass, how the West 
uh, Western partners are reacting is really important. And so despite the fact that we're all, you know, there's this, uh, people are focused elsewhere in Washington is really problematic. So, uh, you know, getting people back on track and focused on these issues to ensure that there isn't an outcome that is uh, detrimental. You really do not want to send the wrong signals. Uh, that somehow certain action, particularly in Crimea, is acceptable. And I'm, I'm worried that in the haste to try to get deals done, uh, that you may have leaders pushing uh, in a certain direction. Um, and, and frankly, it's not the first time that I've seen administrations push on Donbass. Uh, even in the, even the Obama administration at the end, uh, there was an effort to try to resolve the issue. We all agree that we want to see a peaceful resolution, but not the type of peace that, that leads to uh, the potential for something even worse. So I think that's important. I just wanted to add on, on the um, security side. I, I agree with you, Heather, that, you know, that obviously it's important. Uh, Ukraine has made incredible strides in terms of its military, where it was 2014 to now. Still challenges of corruption within the military industrial complex. That makes things incredibly difficult when you're engaging. Uh, Ukraine. It also doesn't help when, you know, the U.S. has played a role, whether it, it is defensive weapons or, uh, you know, something more sophisticated over the last couple of years. Others, you know, in the previous administration now have argued for, you know, whether it's uh, javelins or others. You know, obviously right now we're in the midst of this impeachment crisis, not holding, again, hostage military assistance is particularly important for, you know, for Ukraine. And so that sends signals that, that the U.S. is less than serious, or the president is less than serious about Ukraine security. And if I hear somebody say how great this president is on this particular issue, when we know, you know the circumstance, um, it's laughable. I'm just happy that there's bipartisan support for uh, this type of weapons. And lastly, just on the, on the Baltics, um, you know, uh, I, I think important, obviously, NATO is there um, and Article 5 and the importance of that. Uh, that's why this London summit is so important uh, to reaffirm these commitments. Uh, but you have NATO, uh, NATO troops on the ground uh, that are there. Uh, the issue of little green men um, is, you know, Russia never left these countries. They never left even you know, in, in different forms, whether it's intelligence or use of hybrid aggression. It's, it's even, after, uh, even after the fall of the Soviet Union. So it's something that's gonna have to be continued to be engaged. Um, it's done through disinformation. So the battle is, is in a number of, even if you're not seeing uh, Russian troops, as you know, you could, it could be in other forms. And the little green men are, you know, you're seeing, you know, the, the more of a concern is, will come up in the next panel too, is borderization uh, in Georgia or little green men uh, that are popping up in, in Belarus, which doesn't get a lot of attention, but Belarus seems to be on the radar. Thank you to the Helsinki uh, Commission this week uh, for hosting, uh, yeah, holding a hearing on that important issue. Uh, so I think those are the things that we have to look at is that um, hybrid aggression comes in, is, it, is, it is constant action uh, that's taking place, but I'm, um, I, I'm, maybe I'm too optimistic and confident that uh, that NATO allies will be there for Baltic partners, uh, and they are right now. Just a, very, a couple of very brief comments. Um, Heather, on your point about uh, Minsk, well, yes, of course, uh, it's, it's a flawed agreement, as you well said, um, and that's why we have not seen any movement on it for so long, because um, it's such a bad deal for Ukraine, um, and they really had their hands tied at the time. Um, it was either sign this agreement or 
continue to have a war on your borders where at the, at the time um, it was at the peak of fighting um, and the Russians actually t broke the agreement immediately uh, with one of the most uh, uh, traumatic uh, battles in Debaltseva after Minsk was signed. So they really had little choice there and that's why the agreement reflects that. Um, my concern is that I think Zelensky also wants a deal um, himself and uh, given his po popularity, uh, will move towards fulfilling the Minsk sequencing as it currently stands. And I think that's going to be deeply problematic. And again, I think this is where the absence of the United States, the presence of France um, in that meeting on December 9th makes it really problematic. Uh, my actually uh, most optimistic outcome is that nothing happens. Um, versus something happening, because I think that something will not be great for Ukraine in the long term. Um, so that's, that's directly to your comment. Um, uh, regarding U.S. policy towards Ukraine, I just wanted to make a, the note that I also agree with John, Jonathan that I hope that after all the political hoopla comes to some sort of end, um, that we do see a kind of new support uh, statement for Ukraine coming from the Senate um, or from the whole uh, Congress would be ideal. Um, I did want to mention that um, in the interest of doing something about that, hopefully promoting that, uh, I think all, m most of us are representing yeah. U.S. think tanks um, on the panel and also CSIS are banding together along with the Atlantic Council and AI and a few others um, to hold an event on the Hill on December 4th. We have bipartisan participation from members in the House and in the Senate um, speaking in that event. This is all about why Ukraine matters for the United States and why it matters for broader transatlantic and European security. Um, and so I, th I think hopefully that will be a way to try to mobilize the conversation again in the right direction away from where we've been in Ukraine so far. Um, so I just wanted to put those things out there. And my last comment um, about the Baltics is a big question that we keep going back to. I think it was uh, former Estonian President Tom Ilves who said, who was asked that exact same question, what happens if you see little green men in Estonia? He said, we'll shoot them. And that was basically it. But, you know, I think the reality is that um, there's a lot of uh, conversations happening whether the Baltics should have been led into NATO in the first place, and I think that frames some of the conversations we're having now about new members uh, from the Western Balkans. Uh, and I think the very clear reason as to why that was a good idea is because we haven't seen Little Green Man in the Baltics, because NATO actually works. And the Russians have not tested Article 5. If you look at the frozen conflict zones, these are all countries that are not NATO member states, and they try to intervene in Montenegro before Montenegro became a NATO member state because they knew that was their last opportunity to do so. And um, Macedonia, too. Yes. And, and, yes, everywhere, basically, before it becomes a NATO member state. And so I think that signals very clearly that NATO remains the best deterrent we have um, against an increasingly aggressive Russia. Thank you. I really concur uh, with Elena, especially on the NATO membership. There's absolutely uh, no doubt to me as well that NATO really is a deterrence, uh, is a very strong one. And I think Baltics, luckily for them, are relatively immune for the Russian, uh, from the Russian threat in this sense. Now, I just wanted to comment briefly on two questions. The one about Russia's, uh, you know, active measures in uh, uh, the... Um, uh, European countries, and uh, the one about the um, uh, essentially Russian elites benefiting from 
certain sanctions, right, that devalue ruble. Okay, the first one. So if you look at the uh, Freedom House uh, report and the continuing decline uh, in the number of freedoms in uh, countries, especially in, develop in the developed countries, uh, the, even the Freedom House understands and explains that the major factor that drives this dynamic is the weakening of the good, so to speak. So the West is weakened by domestic issues, and as a result, it creates this opportunity for, uh, you know, on hostile actors like Russia or China to explore those divisions. There's nothing new about that. But also tells you that the re real reasons are within the West. And it may be also good news. It actually demonstrates that Russia might not be as strong as it seems to be because it's continuous presence everywhere. Second of all, the Serbia scandal uh, that's ongoing, I think, is a good news in some way because Serbia is one of the most pro-Russian countries in the region. And the very fact that they're now perceiving the presence and active measures of Russia as being so unfavorable, you know, to the view of the government is actually a demonstration of what I think we observe across Europe. And I'm, I'm just back from Romania. I think we see it there too. That Russia has become toxic. Association with Russia has become increasingly toxic, and its capacity of using its soft power is hands limited. Now, there's a number of actions that the West has taken, such as increasing transparency, which I think are extremely important. I would encourage uh, the Western policymakers to be careful when introducing those policies, though, think, because some of them may be targeted targeting the, the very forces within Russia that we want to reinforce. One of those questionable measures, I would say, is actually the OECD um, automatic exchange of financial account information that was introduced by, based in 2014 by uh, strongly encouraged by Obama administration in an effort to increase transparency. But as a result, it actually exposed to Vladimir Putin personally the accounts, uh, the information of the accounts of the Russians from, I think, 58 countries. Those are probably the Russians who are not very, not, not all of them are supportive of Putin if they choose to keep their money outside of the country. So it's important to keep that in mind when introducing this policy, not to really hurt the Russian opposition as well, as much as I support the general measures that are being implemented. And finally, on on uh, uh, the um, Russian elites benefiting, th those who control right, the, ex uh, the influx of dollars inside the country. Certainly it's true, but every policy has detrimental, uh, so, so it has two sides to it. I would argue that the effect that the uh, ruble devaluation had had, has had on well-being of the Russian citizens and rising uh, disenchantment uh, with the government are arguably more uh, important effects of these policies in this sense. Because as I mentioned before, the decline of the real disposable incomes that we have observed for five consistent years, that is more than we observed in the 1990s. This is something Russia has never witnessed. And the, essentially the negative effect is having on the support for the authorities, I would argue, is a more important effect of the sanctions in this case. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alina, for this injection of optimism at the end that NATO works. That's good for us in the region. Uh, let Please join me in thanking the, the panelists for their excellent contribution. Ten-minute ten coffee break. We'll meet here back at 12.
We can find our seats. Thank you so much. I know I described earlier that this was not a sprint, it was a marathon. So my analogy now, if this is, I wish, if this was a baseball game, I would be giving you a seventh inning stretch. I'm not giving you that seventh inning stretch, but lunch is on the horizon. So uh, thank you so much uh, for continuing this important conversation. Um, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I said, you know, timing is everything, and obviously this has been an extraordinary few weeks as we focused on Ukraine, but to be honest with you, the timing for this conversation on this panel of events that have been taking place just over the last two weeks in Moldova, the last few days in Belarus uh, with parliamentary elections and a lot of pressure uh, coming uh, upon um, the, the Lukashenko regime from, from Russia. And then, of course, ongoing events in Georgia make this such an important conversation. And I'm, I'm so grateful to Ernest for sort of creating this term that we're talking about in-betweenism, the lands between. This is such a great conversation, and we have an amazing panel uh, to help us unpack a very complex story, but with many, many commonalities and trend lines. I'm going to just briefly introduce this wonderful panel and then jump in with some uh, immediate questions. Immediately to my left is Julian Groza, uh, the former Deputy Foreign Minister of the Republic of Moldova, who was in charge of European integration, uh, had held many uh, positions within the Foreign Ministry. Uh, today, he leads the Institute for European Policies in Forms, which is a Moldovan think tank that supports Moldova's European integration, and we are super grateful that you are here with us. Then as I move down towards uh, the next, uh, Dr. Adam Eberhardt, Director of the Center for European Studies in Poland. Uh, uh, Adam served as the uh, center's deputy director for, for many years, and previous to that, he was head of research in the office of the Polish Institute for International Affairs, and was a chief correspondent with the Polish news agency, PAP, and in Moscow. So lots of great angles to that story. Adam, we're grateful that you are here. And then moving on, uh, a colleague whom we, we really value, uh, Alex Johnson, who's chief of staff at the U.S. Helsinki Commission. Um, prior to uh, going back to his Home Commission, if I may say that, Alex, uh, the Helsinki Commission. Alex served as a senior policy advisor for Europe and Eurasia at the Open Society Foundation. Uh, previously, he served in the Obama administration uh, in the Defense Department as a special advisor for Russia, Ukraine, external affairs in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense. He, he had previously served as a policy advisor on the U.S. Helsinki Commission and now back as chief of staff. And then last but certainly not least, we are delighted to have Mamuka Tseretelli, who's senior fellow with the Center, Central Asia Caucus Institute and Silk Roads Program which is a program that's based here in Washington. Uh, but many of you may know Mamuka from his uh, previous stints. Uh, he served from 2009 to 2013 as director of the Center for Black Sea and Caspian Studies at, the, at American University. He's the founding director, executive director of the American Georgia Business Council and was the economic counselor at the Georgian Embassy here in Washington. Also a man with many hats. So uh, we are, are extremely grateful. Thank you so much. So my first question I'm going to ask Ask, and this is the question for each of the panelists, starting with, with Julian. We're sort of taking this five years after the, the revolution of dignity and the Euromaidan. What has changed over the past five years 
in Moldova. And um, you have to tell me and help us understand what is going on in Moldova today with the collapse of a very unique coalition government that we didn't know would form. And now it seems as if we have a Moldovan government that is very much dominated by President Dodin and who's very interested in a very close relationship with Moscow. And if that is wrong, please correct me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much either for uh, this uh, presentation and uh, thank, thanks to the uh, Center for Strategic International, uh, Center for International Studies here. Uh, so I will indeed start by um, uh, by giving you a bit of a context of the current developments, uh, going uh, looking back a bit uh, five years ago, and then as Latin is very popular here in the U.S. in Washington, uh, I will um, I will dwell a bit about the quid pro quo, but from different perspective, a bit from the concession policies uh, with Russia, and then I'll try to address uh, some of the challenges, uh, looking at uh, the hybrid aggression. Uh, uh, elements uh, and efforts directed by Russia towards our region. And then I'll conclude uh, with uh, what the transatlantic community is doing to support transformation and what is the impact. So first, five years ago, indeed, um, uh, Moldova was uh, really uh, starting uh, the path uh, to transformation by uh, signing uh, a very important agreement with the European Union, the Association Agreement, and that was basically seen as uh, uh, one of the main uh, tools to ensure the transformation process. Now, after five years, uh, Moldova is indeed much more closer to the European Union economically. Um, however, if you look into the, uh, the value part uh, of this agreement that uh, um, uh, we have assessed, uh, then many things has uh, still uh, to be addressed in terms of uh, functioning democratic institutions, uh, addressing uh, the selective justice, uh, strengthening the rule of law. Over the last five months, uh, we have been uh, witnessing uh, some indeed unprecedented uh, uh, coalition of forces uh, uh, when in June, uh, pro-Russian Socialist Party uh, um, agreed uh, with a pro-reform, pro-European uh, force to form a government um, having, having as its main task to uh, de-oligarchize, de if, if I may say so, uh, Moldova and liberizing from a captured uh, stance. Um, and the government, which was assumed by uh, uh, the pro-reform leader uh, uh, Sandu, uh, actually was very much dedicating time to rearrange the relationship with our Western partners, um, uh, committing to reforms and prioritizing uh, justice reform. Well, uh, five days ago, uh, now this uh, reformist government was set down by socialists together with uh, former incumbents, Democrats, um, and then very soon after that, uh, a technocrat government was installed uh, by the same two parties. Um, both of them somehow were 
very shy of recognizing an open coalition for different reasons. Uh, socialists uh, not, do not willing to associate some, themselves with somehow with the with the, the results of the former incumbents uh, led by Mr. Plahatnik, who fled the country in June. And Democrats basically uh, also somehow not willing to engage openly with, uh, with socialists. Anyways, now looking at the main challenges, uh, it really goes down to the uh, current democ democracy uh, uh, state in Moldova. And, uh, and uh, this leads me to somehow to, to tackle a bit the element of in-between. Um, uh, and uh, I would start indeed with uh, the con concession policies uh, that we have very much often have seen of some Western countries in dealing with Russia. And I would say that Eastern Europe to Russia is more important uh, than Syria, Middle East, uh, uh, generally, or Africa, uh, where it has uh, been acting like a spoiler more. Uh, this is uh, not uh, the end goal for Russia, indeed, uh, but rather uh, means, and why? Uh, actually, one should not be mistaken thinking that Russia uh, can make concessions in Eastern Europe in exchange for stopping being spoiler in areas that are more important for some Western partners. Uh, there is a saying in Russian, um, the more you eat, the bigger is the appetite. Uh, after receiving concessions on Eastern Europe from the West, Russia will continue pushing. After Russia has gotten control over Eastern Europe, what would it stop from again being a spoiler for further concessions? Another point I wanted to, to make is referring to the, nature of, uh, to, to the nature of interstate aggression or hybrid aggression that Russia is, is, is uh, developing. And it has evolved uh, um, over the recent years and it is most visible in Eastern Europe, including in Moldova and Ukraine. Russia's aggression against Ukraine has impacted the Eastern Europe region in both obvious and obscure ways. Obvious changes uh, for the region uh, are that Russian military intervention in Ukraine that tremendously affected uh, the threshold uh, of the use uh, of military force in Europe is, is, is actually uh, an obvious element. It underlined uh, how vulnerable are the post-Soviet countries in non-kinetic tools of foreign aggression involving influence operations and Moscow's ability to communicate with Russian-speaking segments of in post-Soviet countries' population, and Moldova um, is in a, a case like that. So Eastern Europe, post-Soviet post countries um, have a symbolic and deterrent value. Uh, if no opposition is offered to Russia, um, uh, no, to, to, to this, Russia will easily swallow countries like, like Moldova. In a recent uh, regional study, Moldova was found as the most vulnerable uh, to Russian propaganda uh, manipulations among uh, Central and East European countries. Russia showed that the, uh, the ability to shape national discourse actually places it into the position of an influential participant in national politics, including elections. These trends are not expected to, uh, to, to, to stop, but rather to aggravate, given the significant investment of Russian influence operations in Moldova that dwarfs the Moldovan cumulative budget on defense and security. 
Moldova is not going to be able to effectively resist uh, uh, to these efforts uh, on its own. So without concerted and targeted direct assistance from EU and US to address both uh, the efforts and effects of Russia's influential operations, uh, their impact can be identical to the impact of a successful uh, foreign aggression. Looking back, the U.S. policies towards Moldova have generally achieved modest results um, and show the limited return dynamics so far uh, with the emergent hegemony of pro-Russian Socialist Party in Moldova today. Media, for example, is largely controlled, controlled by political actors with uh, authoritarian tendencies. However, EU and US managed indeed to encourage the development of robust civil society in Moldova and to back up efforts of justice reform promoted in particular over the recent months by the previous reformist government that was sacked down, as I said, by socialists and democrats. Now Moldova is under risk of transiting, transiting under, the, under the control and patronage of the de facto socialist leader, Mr. Dodo. Now to conclude, the U.S., together with the EU, have to further support the capacities of local pro-reform agents and uh, change uh, um, to secure uh, the democratic transformation in my country. This is an, a particularly important element as Russia is dispatching an active strategy of sabotage and discrediting uh, democratic values, uh, principles, ideas, policies, institutions, and political leaders in Moldova. That's to address this challenge, the EU and the US should be more assertive uh, in further supporting reform elites, civil society, and more actively involve, invest into developing positive grassroots movements. Um, condition any financial support with concrete justice reform and anti-corruption measures that will limit the vested interests and produce spillovers uh, for the democratic transformation and thus strengthening the resilience against Russian operations, strengthening security capacities, and abilities to, to deter and respond to hybrid threats uh, has also to be further prioritized. So I'll stop here and then we can continue. Thank you. No, thanks. I always think it's important to end on how important civil society, anti-corruption reform efforts and making that linkage is very clear. Thank you. We, we have lots more to unpack there. Adam, I want to turn to you as, as a, your center has done amazing research in this space and we're looking forward to your overview and then we'll dig in for some further questions. Please, what has changed in the last five years in the region? Great. First of all, thank you very much for having me here. Great privilege and pleasure. No, well, the, the, the first, the basic problem is that we use the term the region while it is not a region anymore. So certainly there is a clear temptation to, to lump all countries together because we hope to get a clear picture and we, and we, and, and, and we, and we hope to, to get a common denominator while in fact the countries differ a lot. Belarus, Moldova, and, and, and uh, Georgia. They differ when it comes to national identity with a very strong national identity in Georgia with uh, actually no Russian minority or Russian-speaking minority, very, with very weak national identity in Belarus, with Moldova as usual being somewhere in between with, with somehow with divided identity between a Romanian, Moldovan one and a post-Soviet one. There are differences when it comes to economy, to uh, relations between the mentioned countries and Russia. So, Belarus being very integrated into the Russian uh, economic uh, space, 
with a huge dependence on energy resources, on access to Russian market, on, on debts and credits, while in fact uh, uh, Georgia has no diplomatic relations with uh, Russia for over 11 years, even though uh, the power is un in, in, under control of former Russian oligarch uh, Bizina Ivanishvili, and Moldova again somewhere in, in between. There are also differences when it comes to instruments of, of Russian power. There are protracted conflicts which are completely different in case of Georgia, in case of Abkhazia and Skin Valley region, South Ossetia, where the borders are sealed. There is no transfer of people, in fact, and, and Russia has recognized the countries. In case of Moldova and Transnistria, the situation is completely different. The conflict has never been of ethnic uh, one, it was uh, just a conflict which was rooted in uh, ideology and vested interests of local elite uh, in Transnistria, which was supported by Russian patrons. So, so different, different, different uh, countries. You know, six years ago, uh, dignity the Dignity Revolution in Ukraine has started to commemorate it today, and it was extremely in interesting why it happened. It happened because Russia overestimated European Union. Russia pressed on President Yanukovych not to sign association agreement and deep and comprehension free trade uh, agreement with uh, European Union, because Russia at that time believed that European Union is willing to to, to go east, to, to, to integrate the countries of the Eastern Partnership. And it was, it was a grave mistake by Russia, because, if Russia, because it resulted in a revolution under the flags of European Union in Ukraine. It resulted in a situation where Russia, in fact, they uh, gained the Crimea and part of Donbass, but uh, in my opinion, they lost uh, most of Ukraine uh, for, for, many, many, for, for a generation or, or longer. It is to be, to be discussed. And uh, today the situation is different. Today we well know that European Union is not able to offer a, not only a membership perspective for the Eastern European countries, but in fact we have no idea how to support modernization and transformation of the countries. So we are not, we the European Union are not only, not only having, facing problems with bringing the countries into Europe, but we also have problem how to, 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 to move Europe to the countries, how to, how to support transformation. And Russia is, is taking advantage of it. And Russia somehow, I believe, they understood that all they need is strategic patience. They need strategic patience in case of Belarus, where people, I, I very much hope there will be an opportunity to discuss Belarusian issue later, but, but they very much hope that Belarusian society will get rid of independent, independent Belarus and it would uh, enable Russia to incorporate uh, Belarus into Russia. And they hope that Moldovan society and Georgian society becomes more and more fed up with a never-ending process of European integration which, which, which does not give fruit, and, and they hope that, that, uh, that uh, it will 
end up with, with Russia getting a stronger hand. Julian has just <coughs> mentioned situation, recent developments in the Republic of Moldova, which is very telling and uh, which is extremely serious because, you know, we, the West, European Union, United States, we were happy half a year ago that we, we, we cut the deal with Russia, that we have coalition government in Moldova where there are pro-European parties and where there is a pro-Russian party and they govern together. Yeah? So we, we were happy that we managed you know, to, 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 to finally develop a, 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 a non-geopolitical approach to the region, a model of managing the countries in between. It does not work because Russia perceives the region in a zero-sum game and, and, and everything Russia would like is to regain control over the territories and they perceive any European Union engagement as a, as a threat for their interests. And I think it has not changed over the last years, but what has changed it is tactics of Russia. They are more strategically patient and uh, it starts to pay off. Thank you. Adam, thank you so much. Alex, if I heard you correctly, you have just come back from Kizi now, so eyes on the ground. We welcome your thoughts. And the Helsinki Commission just held a hearing on Belarus on anti-corruption efforts, so perfectly timed, if I may say. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm really honored and to join this esteemed panel, a number of tremendous experts. And as I was looking through my notes for this conversation, I think Adam and I were drawing from a number of the same sources. So uh, our commissioners and Chairman Hastings, who I work with, really consider a number of these issues as key priorities for the region. I would say we also have um, explored the concept that these countries are very different geographically, culturally, and in terms of their transatlantic engagement with the United States. Um, but there are some common denominators, I would argue, and one of those uh, core elements is the challenges that are emerging in terms of civic space and the ability for people to essentially assert power over their own lives and engage in civically, uh, either politically or by other means. Um, this is, takes the forms of NGO laws restricting uh, foreign funding and the erosion of other institutions. And we've seen even upcoming soon in Georgia uh, some additional demonstrations in the coming days that have even been announced. Uh, some other common denominators between these countries include corruption and the ability to address corruption, in particular uh, corruption that is both endemic uh, and also operationalized externally by Russia and, and other actors. Uh, and also the challenge of oligarchs and political elites essentially extracting as much as they can from the economic system, especially in the case of, you know, we're now five years after $1 billion were stolen in Moldova and there's still no resolution. Uh, additionally, they all have challenges in terms of sovereignty questions, be it the overbearing engagement with kin states in the neighbors, neighborhood or active occupation in the case of, of uh, Georgia or command and control of uh, military uh, structures associated with Belarus in terms of their defense. Um, but one of the things that all of these elements uh, equate to is a challenge in terms of vulnerability for malign influence, in particular from the Kremlin, uh, where there is this, you know, uh, revanchist objective, uh, mainly operationalized through 
information and media consolidation. Uh, I would say, uh, as Heather said, I just came back from Chisinau a little over a week and a half ago, just as uh, then Prime Minister Sandu courageously stood up uh, to address issues associated with corruption, uh, associated with her own uh, party's campaign plans, and I saw the international community really fight together to engage and, and hope to salvage uh, this reform-oriented government. And, and I would argue that uh, the government that now has been installed is uh, is very unlikely to operate as a technocratic government, given some of the connections engaged, particularly with the president's office, who has um, mobilized pretty actively to fill the vacuum uh, left by Mr. P, or as many call him in Moldova, or Mr. Plahatniuk. Uh, one of the challenges is he's actually been engaged in the media space, taking up uh, some of the investments that Mr. Plahatniuk had abandoned as he left the country so quickly in terms of control and engagement with TV stations. So it would be difficult to call this incoming government technocratic. Um, I would say, of course, moving to Belarus, uh, we did have a hearing yesterday that was really uh, constructive, I felt, and, and interesting to evaluate that there was uh, almost unanimity from the independent experts in terms of seeing a much more active U.S. role in terms of formally exchanging uh, diplomatic representation and finding ways to engage people-to-people connections. I had several of my team members uh, head out to Belarus recently to observe the elections with the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly, and as you may have seen from the preliminary reports from that, it was uh, very challenging in which uh, uh, the parliamentarian Margareta Setterfeld indicated that elections there are becoming a formality or on the verge of doing so. So Belarus, Tremendous challenges we can discuss. I look forward to the conversation on that. And in terms of Georgia, I think I'll leave more of that to my, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Saratelli. But I would say um, in Georgia, there are a number of challenges in terms of the fatigue with which the, the, they have stood with the United States in terms of partnership and engagement with NATO. Uh, and other operations and not being recognized for that uh, accomplishment and, and contribution. And so we, we hope to figure out a way to, to find a solution in that respect. And I look forward to also discussing some of the legislative proposals that our commissioners are considering and, and other things as we continue the conversation. Thank you. Alex, thank you so much. That's great. We really need help understanding what's going on in Georgia right now. So maybe you can begin there. But 11 years after the Russian invasion, how have things evolved? Um, I'll go back probably with your earlier question first. Uh, the, what happened in the last five years since uh, 2014 and uh, 13 and 14 annexation of Crimea. And then we'll move to uh, more details probably. First is that uh, definitely we should mention that Russia became much more superior military power in Black Sea region than it was before with all the presence in, in um, uh, Crimea that became like a bastion for uh, all sorts of different weaponry and missiles and everything else with, that allows Russia to reach way beyond, uh, beyond Black Sea now. Also very important, Russia now claims, the Russian Federation claims that Europe has different map so uh, with some new states on it and some uh, territories that have evolved and changed. And so Russia advocates, as we all know, for uh, renegotiation of uh, post-Cold uh, War uh, security architecture and arrangement. 
Russia does not consider itself bound by any international agreements or commitments anymore. Russia is in violation of this Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, which was an integral part of OSCE process and which uh, sets limits of troops and equipment, including in Georgia, obviously, Ukraine, uh, Moldova, and other countries. Countries in, in Russian neighborhood are under much more increased pressure than before. And they are responding somewhat to this pressure uh, because they fear Russia. And by the way, uh, it's not exactly the conversation of this uh, panel, but uh, if you look at what's going on uh, with, let's say, Uzbekistan, which is a very interesting country, obviously, a very important country with uh, very interesting reforms in the last several years. But under pressure in the last several weeks and months, uh, Uzbekistan now started to consider uh, joining European economic, uh, Eurasian Economic Union. And uh, so that's a one, one, one example. Uh, another example, obviously, what's going on in Georgia. Uh, um, Georgia is under daily pressure from Russia. Occupation and so-called borderization is continuing. People are being abducted, uh, abducted almost on a daily basis around occupational, uh, around occupational territories. One example is Dr. Vajja Gaprindashvili, who is currently in Tsinwali prison. He does not want to sign the document saying that he's, he actually violated the international border. Uh, which would mean recognition from him that uh, he is in a territory of the other state. He claims that he has the right of free movement inside the, inside the internationally recognized Georgian territory. So ethnic Georgian citizens, both in Abkhazia and Tsinwali region, have no ability to ex exercise their uh, basic human rights. Uh, they cannot go uh, to Georgian schools anymore. There are no Georgian schools. They cannot uh, actually worship and uh, exercise their religious right. There is no Georgian services in churches in those territories. Um, another um, probably bad news of the last five years is that NATO and EU are facing serious internal problems with the statements of Macron and other issues that the EU is facing. And also, I should, we should probably admit and face this reality that the U.S. has no clear Black Sea or, or general Central and Eastern European strategy. There are some very good developments on bilateral level, let's say with Poland and moving forces there and so forth, but there is no coherent strategy that would, uh, that would um, ensure somehow these countries in the region that there is a support, continuous support. Internal political dynamics in U.S., as we all heard earlier today, is not helpful. We are sort of, our countries are sort of collateral damage of this impeachment process. Uh, by the way, as Fiona Hill said this morning uh, in her testimony, domestic politics stop us from uh, defending ourselves against foreign powers uh, who truly wish us harm. It's even more so when, we, when it relates, if you think about how much harm it does to U.S., you can think think about how much harm it does to uh, these countries when all the officials who are supposed to be occupied with uh, thinking and working on, on the issues related to this region are preoccupied with some other responsibilities. Georgia at this point has no security guarantees from any of the Western partners and unless some changes occur in Russia or in US and European policies, Georgia will have, no, have to deal with these issues, with this very fragile situation on its own. There are some there is some help, obviously. There are some training programs. Uh, NATO uh, uh, integration process is, 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 is progressing. But 
let's be also frank about that. There is no firm security guarantees to Georgia. So what, what, what options Georgia has in this reality on a, on a tactical or strategic sort of uh, alternatives that country is facing? Again, I'll be a little blunt here, but you know, option one is to fight, right? If every time Russia moves borders, uh, Russian Federation moves borders, uh, so-called borders inside of Georgian controlled territories, like earlier somebody mentioned, uh, uh, Il uh, President Ilves's words, we need to shoot them. So, but if you shoot them, then there will be obviously uh, some, uh, there are some risk factors and escalation. Uh, Bob probably won't like this uh, uh, the idea of shooting Ru Russian uh, militaries moving inside of Georgian territory. He experienced that once in, in 2008. But uh, reality is that unless you fight, they will continue doing it. And, uh, but uh, we know that this is a very risky proposition, very, uh, very bad news, but at some point probably, you know, if we have to think about how far that can go. Um, I remember in 2013 or 14, I had the interesting meetings in, in Brussels with several ambassadors, Western ambassadors who served in Russia. At that time, Russia believed that if they moved into Georgian territories, Georgians would shoot them. I don't know if they believe it now. So again, not ideal uh, solution of Georgia's problems, but they need to be some kind of uh, they, they need to know that there is a cost of, of the actions. But that's a, just one option to, to uh, exercise. Another option would be that is advised mostly by partners, Georgia's partners, to exercise strategic patience. There was, uh, this wording was mentioned on, uh, from other contexts, from Russia's context, but that's what Georgia is advised by Western friends, exercise strategic patience, which means that pretty much do nothing, just cry loudly every time Russian Federation and their proxies do something nasty and call on international community to help, make statements and so forth, political statements. That has some value, but that doesn't resolve uh, issues uh, and problems on the ground. Uh, okay, there, is, uh, there are some other options, obviously, uh, theoretical, uh, theoretical options that to uh, engage with other countries, uh, China, uh, India and other forces that could somehow serve as a balancing power to Russia. But that's, uh, again, first of all, it's, uh, it comes with certain kind of cost uh, as well. And Georgia's uh, pro-Western, pro-European, pro-transatlantic commitment is pretty firm. So definitely the country wants to move in this direction. Um, and last but not least, obviously, internal situation is very important. And uh, uh, Western orientation and NATO and EU, EU uh, will not come uh, to uh, this, 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 uh, this strategy will not uh, succeed if Georgia is not progressing on, um, on democratic front and uh, in exercising uh, democratic rights of citizens that, and elections and uh, electoral uh, kind of uh, rights are important part of that. Uh, uh, it's Georgia's democracy in, in progress, obviously, and with lots of uh, work in progress, I would say, with lots of, uh, lots of um, challenges to it and many problems it's facing. It's a long, it has a long way to go, but on, its way, on this way, actually, it's essential that, uh, uh, that to understand that there are different standards at this stage already required from Georgia. And I think that's what, what Western uh, partners 
are, um, uh, in, a sense, ask, in a sense, asking for, for uh, Georgian um, government and also opposition. I think it's a uh, Georgian political class needs to learn how to compromise. Uh, obviously, a burden of uh, more responsibilities on the government side, but I think all sides need to have this uh, uh, responsibility. Uh, in my personal opinion, parliamentary republic with a proportional party system and zero threshold is not a good idea for Georgia. But, but government made commitment to do this in uh, June uh, of uh, this year. And for several months, it was advertised all over the uh, world that Georgia is doing it. And, and not doing it is not helpful for, obviously, perceptions, for uh, Georgia's, again, uh, perceptions with its partners. And uh, that obviously causes some internal uh, turmoil and uh, destabilization, I would say, as well. Uh, in the in times when Georgia needs stability, more inflow of foreign direct investments, more uh, commitment for, uh, for, to economic progress and growth and so forth, uh, the photos uh, for, uh, that come out of uh, streets of Tbilisi are not definitely helpful. So I'll stop here and then. Thank you so much, and thank you for helping provide a little greater clarity on sort of the dynamics that we're, we're seeing uh, in Georgia today. What I thought I would do is, is ask each of our panelists, for, for me, as an observation, the last five years have really uh, set forward a new pattern of integration with Russia. So a lot of documents of integration we're seeing with the, in, of course, in, in Georgia with the Abkhazia and South Ossetia. We've just seen where on Monday, if I believe, the uh, uh, sort of the, the document of sort of a union of Russia and Belarus has been introduced. Uh, and, and President Lukashenko had very strong views that this, he would sign nothing thing that would violate the Belarusian constitution or fundamental principles. Um, and of course, Moldova and Transnistria, we continue to have these pressures for this integration. Um, I just wondered if we, maybe Julian, start with you, sort of how is this now different, these integration trends where, where Moscow is trying to create facts on the ground of, of integration and, and reduce even the possibility of someday seeing territorial integrity uh, from Moldova, Georgia, uh, as well as uh, potentially Belarus in the future. And Dr. Sarsarelli, if you could turn off your microphone, we'll not get feedback. Thank you. Please. Uh, well, uh, in terms of Moldova and the, this um, process of reintegration uh, of the country with the uh, Transnistrian region, uh, I would just say that, uh, in fact, uh, we have not observed too much of a progress in terms of the settlement process. Indeed, there are some steps that actually very much are shaped by the so-called confidence-building measures, which are supported by, uh, by uh, uh, the partners, EU in particular as well. Uh, um, but these policies are very much targeting uh, the issues uh, or the problems uh, that uh, are actually are affecting the population uh, or different uh, uh, actors uh, in the region. And for example, uh, I mean, in the last five years, what we have observed is that through this policy, um, 
population in Transnistrian region have been offered and business in Transnistrian region have been offered the same the same rights uh, as for the rest uh, of the uh, of the actors in the country. I mean. Uh, businesses from Transnistrian region are benefiting from uh, a deep and comprehensive free trade area of the European Union, uh, the agreement that Moldova has signed with the European Union. And actually, this makes uh, Moldovan case or, or the Transnistria uh, benefiting from the CFTA unique in the sense that the region is actually uh, um, obliged to follow the standards and norms of the European Union. Well, there is not more progress in that, uh, much progress in data, but, uh, but in any ways, uh, there is at least the, this opening policy. And then on the other hand, um, since 2014, uh, Moldova is benefiting from free tr uh, visa-free travel to the European Union, and now over 65% of the population has benefited from that right to travel without any, any obstacles to the European Union. And this right actually was extended to the Transnistrian uh, region as well. And there are over 150,000 uh, uh, citizens in the region who have benefited from that. So this, of course, is, is a positive dynamic. However, it does not necessarily contribute to the settlement process because uh, Transnistrian region has a very uh, diverse objective, mainly uh, um, advocating for uh, separatism um, or minimum to keep the, the status quo um, because from this status quo there are a lot of, a lot of interests that are benefiting local, uh, regional uh, uh, businesses uh, very much connected to politics. Um, so at the end of the day what we also observed over the last in particular two years is especially after the war in Ukraine started uh, is that uh, the um, military forces in the region, together with uh, illegally staying Russian troops in, in Moldova, they were conducting joint exercises, military exercises, basically uh, uh, challenging uh, the river Nistor, or basically um, trying to uh, simulate a possible in, um, attack or whatever intervention or defense, whatever. Uh, which is a very, very a concerning signal because over the last uh, year there were over 150 exercises uh, organized. Um, and this is, of course, uh, not very much helping because Moldova, I mean, Moldova's uh, budget, defense budget, as I told you at the very beginning, is uh, scarce. I mean, uh, um, Moldova's military capacity now currently have been, are being only strengthened with the support of, of NATO, with the support of the European Union, but we're far from the, uh, reaching any uh, uh, capacity to, to engage or, I mean, to engage, we know, no, nobody is thinking about that. But uh, more importantly, even to defense uh, from any such of intervention. So now where we are at this stage, basically, uh, there is the 5 plus 2 format, wherever these uh, negotiations are taking place. Uh, um, and uh, not, I mean, these the negotiations are not uh, uh, advancing. Um, uh, and in that sense, one should really look at what are the uh, options. Another challenge in our case is that we don't have a unique vision for the reintegration of the country. 
uh, now the president of the country is very much advocating for uh, uh, a solution uh, which now very m many people are, uh, actually associate with his previous uh, proposals done uh, two years ago about federalizing Moldova, which is not very popular, actually not very not popular at all in, in Moldova. And that apparently there is, there is no very much appetite also in the Transnistrian region to, uh, uh, from, from the local uh, uh, elites to look at it. So we should look at these uh, uh, processes as really, really much as... as um, uh, 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 a way of Russia very much to um, uh, keep us hostage, ho hostages from, from, uh, from f f further developing. And uh, even though a few years ago very, very many experts and policymakers were indicating to the fact that we have in Transnistria the most solvable case because we don't have any ethnic uh, ground, uh, it's very much an artificial conflict, uh, uh, supported mainly mainly from strategic perspective by Russia, and from business or whatever uh, limit uh, vested interest perspectives from the local uh, lo local elites. So currently, there is very little perspective to to look at any settlement solutions. Uh, even though uh, the president was very much supportive of that, what we observe is now that also the president is is being even more careful as the presidential elections are, are coming next year, and most likely uh, his promise he made like uh, three years ago um, that he will be the historical unifier of the country will not definitely be implementable because in this uh, context, uh, uh, no indications to that is, uh, is happening. I will say before turning to Adam that uh, as you were describing the, the confidence building measures, it reminded me of the stateless citizens, the ethnic Russians in, in, in Estonia and Latvia, the same thing. They, they have free travel to the EU, they have access to Russia. It almost creates a system where they, they, they don't want to. They're getting benefits from, from both sides and in fact that in, it hinders ultimately wanting more citizens and to be integrated into the society. So I think there's some similar similarities. I know in Washington we have been concerned about the uptick in the military exercises in that region. Uh, so it has not gone unnoticed, but we needed to spend, I think, some more time talking about that and making sure that it was observed. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Adam, on, on Belarus, so we have a similar situation. The EU just announced the potential EU-Belarusian visa facilitation, so very similar to, to Moldova. You have this uh, this document that could perhaps be an integrative uh, document between a union of Russia and, and Belarus. President Lukashenko has been very resistant to this. Do you see in Belarus an integration scenario? Some of us have posited that that is how President Putin perhaps extends his leadership past 2024 because he could be the president of combined Russia and Belarus as a one scenario of many that we contemplate in the post-2024 environment, but would welcome your thoughts. Thank you. Well, I will elaborate on Belarus, but let me just briefly say several words about Transnistrian conflict and the protracted unresolved conflicts in the post-Soviet space. There is a paradox. There is a paradox that we should fear uh, reintegration much more than a status quo. It is a problem that any reintegration of Transnistria into Moldova or Donbas into Ukraine is likely to happen just on Russian terms. 
and as a result, we would face quite the opposite. Not a reintegration of Transnistria into Moldova, but rather reintegration of Moldova into Transnistria. Yes, Transnistrization of whole Moldova. We will face not a reintegration of Donbass into Ukraine, but we will fear a well, Donbassization of whole Ukraine. So, in fact, uh, an attempt to derail modernization of Republic of Moldova or modernization of Ukraine uh, and transforming those countries into weak states, corrupted states, which are unable to proceed with a state reform, which are, because of the federal system, unable to be governed uh, in a smoothly way where the situation gets improved. So, you know, there is an old proverb, beware of Greeks uh, bearing gifts. And uh, I, would, I would repeat it in this, in this case again. So any settlement on Russian terms does not mean strengthening Ukraine or, Moldo or Moldova, but quite the contrary. Just Belarus. You know, the situation is very different in Belarus because it is a country which has been governed by President Lukashenko for 25 years, while Belarus is 20 years uh, old with weak national identity, with society which is quite passive, and, 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 uh, and the situation is somehow frozen in political terms. But at the same time, the people get, well, the, the system gets somehow has been changing recently because of growing Russian pressure and Russian attempts to integrate Belarus with Russia. There is, what is crucial in case of uh, Belarus is lack of alternative to President uh, Lukashenko. There is no alternative in domestic sphere and a new generation has appeared. You know, for the last 25 years they remember just Belarus of President Lukashenko. So, and after 25 or 27 years, people need a change. They hope for a change. And any change, the only change which, which, which is possible is not a change within Belarus. You should not expect anyone to come and replace President Lukashenko. You should not uh, expect Belarus to, to integrate with European Union. You should not expect Belarus to become a democratic state. The only visible, the only likely alternative for the people of Belarus is President Putin. And it is also a paradox. It is also a paradox that people who are fed up with the status quo, who are fed up with stagnation of Belarus, they are turning their eyes to Russia because they provide, Russia may provide them with an only change which is, which is somehow likely. And it is, it, is, it, is, it is a problem. You know, two years ago, I have been traveling across central Belarus, and I have been talking with taxi drivers, people in the bar, about what would you do if there is a referendum about integration of Belarus into Russia? But not a union state, but just integrating, you know, as a, one country. I talked to a dozen of people, and you know, all of them said, why not? You know, and certainly it is not a statistical sample. I don't argue it is because we don't have statistical samples in Belarus at all. But yeah, yeah, but may, maybe maybe taxi maybe taxi drivers have a peculiar view on on, on, on Belarus Bela, Belarus statehood. I don't know, but I think it is Russian company taxis. Maybe, maybe, uh, let's hope. Uh, no, but, you know, but frankly speaking, I, I, I think it is a problem. It is a problem. Well, for, for years, we, 
expert community, we have believed that with every single year of Belarusian independence, the Belarusian statehood will become stronger and stronger. Be because people get used to, to, to Belarusian statehood, get, they support Belarusian soccer team, they support Belarusian hockey team, they, they, they attend uh, Belarusian schools. No, it does not work, it didn't work like that. Mainly because of President Lukashenko, who, where there is another paradox. He supports independence because he does not want to become a governor of the Belarusian district of Russia, that's for sure. But at the same time, he has done nothing, in fact, to strengthen national identity, to strengthen uh, Belarusian uh, society and their willingness to, 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 to keep Belarus as an independent state. And it is a problem. So in my opinion, the situation becomes more and more um, challenging. People become more and more frustrated, and in recent parliamentary elections, you could have seen that turnout was the lowest ever. Mm, people cannot see an alternative. They believe that only alternative is Putin. And at the same time, they did not get used to Belarusian statehood. I don't know how, how the situation would, de uh, would develop, but, but I fear that if the Russian government, if the Kremlin wants to repeat a Crimea scenario, uh, President Lukashenko might have been uh, vulnerable and uh, there will be a lot of people around who do not care. We're gonna have to end on a positive note, but we've got ways to go here. Alex, what are your, what are your thoughts? I actually wanted to return to a couple of the points raised uh, related to U.S. policy in particular on uh, the modest U.S. results in Moldova and this uh, challenge in terms of no coherent strategy for the region. Uh, I wouldn't argue too much against uh, those assessments other than to say that at least from a congressional perspective, the commissioners that I've worked with have been really focused on developing a toolkit that counters the toolkit that autocrats in the region and others are operationalizing technology with and uh, finding ways to essentially consolidate their power and strength. Uh, getting to Moldova in particular, I was really heartened to see the leadership of Ambassador Hogan in Chisinau when it was really uh, a tumultuous time in the political transition. Um, there are a number of uh, career foreign service officers, leaders in the region who are deeply engaged in trying to ensure that we're impactful and, and leading in terms of what we can do in some of these spaces, especially when it comes to exchanges, engagement with civil society and the other elements uh, that we can bring to bear in terms of uh, reinforcing democratic institutions. Uh, from the Commission's perspective, uh, expanding a little bit further to the region, uh, we're, we're of course known for uh, Senator Cardin's leadership on Global Magnitsky and some of the other mechanisms that look at, of course, uh, corruption uh, initiatives as well as human rights abuses and how do we individually sanction those who are the perpetrators of this. Uh, the State Department has been really active in trying to be more effective in terms of naming individuals, particularly in this region, uh, to the Global Magnitsky list. And so we're, of course, partnering uh, in terms of trying to get more people named and to increase the cost of some of these challenges that we're seeing in the region that increase the vulnerability to influence from, from the Kremlin and elsewhere. Uh, additionally, 
we have introduced uh, in a bicameral matter uh, and bipartisan this uh, TRAP Act, we call it the Transnational Repression and Accountability Prevention Act, which seeks to really uh, address issues associated with the abuse of Interpol, red notices and diffusions, uh, to stifle uh, those who are offshore, if you will, in terms of civil society and other independent actors who are fighting for their home countries in terms of trying to drive reform and engagement. Uh, so we look forward to hopefully seeing some action on that this Congress, given the broad bipartisan support for that legislation. Additionally, our commissioners are really focused on a suite of kleptocracy-related initiatives where we were countering different mechanisms associated with uh, the way oligarchs and others are, are creating challenges for the region and increasing the vulnerability of, of these societies. Those include uh, the Crook Act, H.R. 3843, uh, which is supported by a number of our commissioners, which will have an anti-corruption action fund at the disposal of, of our government to engage and empower um, our embassies with focal points to go out there and help counter corruption in these spaces. Also, I could go through a, a number of other pieces, but um, I would refer you to our hearings in this Congress where we have taken on some of these issues of transnational repression um, and other uh, country-specific engagements in the region in order to find solutions of how the U.S. can be more present, more engaged, and more focused uh, with its eye on the ball. Alex, thank you so much. I I'm wondering, um, Mooka, if you could mention, uh, there certainly have been pretty dramatic changes um, with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, the pushing out of the border just almost constantly. You mentioned the abductions and things like that. I would argue, please correct me if I'm wrong, that that process has actually dramatically worsened over the last few years and would, would, would welcome your reflection on that. That was one, one of my earlier points that, you know, this is, uh, this is uh, there's the escalation of this process and uh, because there is not enough pushback from international community or there are no mechanisms to really protect uh, those uh, villages, those um, citizens of, of Georgia who live in next to those hardwired uh, uh, sort of areas. Uh, so um, this is, it's pretty frequent that Russian military uh, and local uh, proxy supporters, they move these borders. Uh, again, uh, they use this uh, uh, in some cases uh, uh, territories that are not uh, sort of borderized yet uh, to go beyond uh, uh, this administrative line and, and inside of Georgian territory, abduct people from there. And it's a, it's, a, it's a mechanism of pressure. They understand very well that it's, on one hand, it's, uh, uh, it shows some weaknesses of, of Georgia. It also destabilizes internal situation in the country because then Obviously, opposition reacts much harsher on these things and says that you know, government is not capable of defending territory and defending country and so forth. So there are many implications of, and, and multiple objectives that Russia is pursuing by doing this. Uh, and uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, definitely uh, the purpose and goal. Uh, but in terms of human rights of people who live inside of the territory, it's, it's worsened uh, drastically in the last several years. Years. As I mentioned, even in the Georgian kids, if they speak Georgian in Gali region, uh, they are now uh, actually punished in the schools 
And uh, there are all sorts of different uh, uh, sort of pressure on them to actually forget that they are Georgians, forget that they, are, they, they have uh, their own language and, and so forth. Again, I mentioned about the religious exercise and religious rights and so forth. Uh, just to comment on Alex, uh, my point was really that uh, there are some uh, good news on the bilateral levels with different countries and Georgia is definitely beneficiary of very strong US support uh, in economic, you know, whether it's OPIC or some other kind of funding institutions, MCC and others. Uh, there was a Georgia Support Act adopted by House. Hopefully, it will go to Senate now, and it will be adopted by uh, by Senate as well. There is a some some uh, warmness in the conversation about free trade agreement. As you all know, Georgia has free trade agreements with China, Turkey, CIS countries, European Union, but not the United States. So there is some some willingness to have conversation on this subject going forward. But what I mean about uh, more engagement and coherent strategy, I'm also I also mean about region broader region. Uh, not far from here, there is a <clears throat> celebration going on right now, um, about 20 years of so-called uh, uh, deal of the century, when pipeline deal was signed between uh, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, United States, and Kazakhstan uh, as well, in 19, on, a, on the sidelines of OSC summit in 1999 in Istanbul. Uh, and uh, so that was a different level of engagement. President Clinton was present. And uh, U.S. support to grand uh, strategy of enlargement of Europe at that time, late 90s and early 2000s, uh, was, was much greater. So this grand strategy to enlarge Europe, enlarge European Union, enlarge NATO, and also support this enlargement with economic, energy security, and other means. That was a coherent strategy then. Unfortunately, there was no, no such a strategy at this point today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to go out and get a couple of questions, and then we're going to break for lunch. Um, and as I'm collecting, I see one hand in the back. The question, my last question to the panelists, you can wrap up as we go down the line and final comments. What, if any, influence has China had in Belarus, Moldova, and Georgia? Um, it, it, particularly, I, what we're seeing is a lot of evidence between Belarus, you, you, loans and things like that, and infrastructure. That's sort of my last. And ma'am, right back there, I see a question. Krista, right there. Thank you. Please introduce yourself. Anitrikwadze, Voice of America, Georgian Service. A uh, quick question about the protests that, we're, that are taking place in Georgia. And as you mentioned, they're more uh, planned. Uh, and the. Uh, what caused the protest, which is the electoral system and backtracking on the promise of changing the electoral system that the uh, Bidzina Ivanishvili, the informal ruler, uh, kind of gave back in June when uh, when they cracked down on, on anti-Russian protests. So if that does not happen, and so far we have, uh, there are no signs that he will take back the decision not to change the system, what do you see can follow uh, in Georgia since the, the situation is on the ground very tense and it also risks boiling over? Thank you very much. And this is for everyone. I'm going to let you go ahead and take that, Dr. Cirilli. Go ahead and take that Georgia question if you'd like. Uh, I think there are some other Georgia experts here as well, but. <laughs> But uh, 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 I'll start with China, maybe, and then I'll move to So China, I mean, there is a growing presence. We see it in the region. Uh, I wouldn't say that Georgia, let's say, no, doesn't owe, owe any money to China. There is no uh, major sort of dependency or, or some kind of uh, visible uh, kind of dependency, growing dependency on China. Uh, a few years ago, it was desirable to have some kind of uh, presence of other 
uh, when U.S.-China relationships were different and European-China relationships were different, uh, it seemed to be uh, China's investments seemed to be welcomed uh, as a, and uh, China's greater presence seemed to be welcomed uh, as a balancing factor for, again, for the, uh, uh, the major security and other kind of threats that Georgia faces and the Caucasus in general. Uh, and, uh, but uh, with, the, with the evolving relationship between the United States, European Union, with China, with some uh, more negativity sort of rising in that relationship, Obviously, uh, countries are more careful what they do with China going forward, and that that uh, uh, that that is reflected in in uh, some of the decisions. Let's say uh, uh, some of the investments are no longer uh, happening uh, that were planned in uh, in earlier sort of stages of development and so forth. But uh, Georgia's export to China is increasing. Let's say uh, we see that. Um, free trade agreement helped Georgia more than China because Georgia had open border anyway, so anybody can import anything to Georgia. So, uh, but, but Georgia, was, it was helpful to increase export of different products to, uh, to, um, uh, to China. Um, on Georgia, I don't, know, I don't know, frankly, what to expect. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know whether there will be a, a decision reversed uh, on this, uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, earlier I mentioned that I think compromises would be helpful in order to de-escalate this, uh, this situation and ten tensions. Uh, this, there are so many uh, uh, challenges this country has, uh, and I think it would have been helpful to uh, pursue uh, what promises were made earlier. Uh, but I think uh, if, I, if I had the right to advise, I would advise the, uh, to really take into consideration this is essential to somehow find some kind of compromises so that so that legitimacy of the next elections is not questioned by anybody. Partners on the West, European Union, OSCE, United States, and also, most importantly, that legitimacy is not questioned internally in the country. Fantastic, I'm gonna work my way down. Alex, if you have any thoughts on those questions or any closing thoughts, please, we'll, then we'll wrap up. I was hoping for a little more time for conversation. We've got some tremendous people in the room uh, that I wanted to catch up with. But I would uh, quickly probably pass on China, and that is that, uh, of course, our commission focuses mainly on the OSCE region. Um, you know, it, it looms large, but I would say that's a, another team's remit in that regard. Uh, in terms of Georgia and the outlook uh, related to the reforms, I think uh, what we're seeing now and what I had referred to earlier is a challenge associated with uh, the lack of recognition of uh, a real, true, valuable strategic partnership, I would say, on the bilateral level with the United States. Um, there, it's creating a, a vacuum and a, a window of opportunity where uh, I would say the leadership has, has demonstrated that without seeing progress in terms of uh, Euro-Atlantic integration, there really isn't a driving force or a factor to implement even those campaign promises around elections or other sorts of engagement. And so I think we need to essentially double down, find a way to uh, start to prioritize our strategic partnership with Georgia. And that will uh, help in terms of figuring out some of the challenging issues, including the erosion of uh, institutions like in the judiciary. There are a number of challenges where there were reforms moving forward and then they're starting to slide back without this uh, driving engagement with the United States. 
Um, I would go back to, to just offer some closing thoughts. We could have spent this entire panel talking about uh, the media consolidation, the challenges in the information space in all of these countries, which is really in terms of the relationship of this overarching forum, this uh, focusing on, on Russia, uh, is one of the greatest vulnerabilities and greatest challenges where the beneficial ownership of media outlets is, is so opaque and uh, oligarchs are still controlling what people are able to engage with or the, the production value of, of uh, segments created in Russia outweigh the media space uh, domestically in many of these countries. And we need to find a way to address that through both U.S. investments, uh, investments with our partners in Europe and others. But I would also say one thing that we haven't talked about enough on this panel uh, is the OSCE, of course, and its pivotal role in addressing the, the protracted conflicts in this space. And that's a place where, uh, in terms of U.S. policy, we must prioritize in terms of engaging and trying to find better solutions, especially with now that we have a confirmed ambassador, uh, Ambassador Jim Gilmore, who's doing tremendous work in Vienna right now, we should be doubling down on engaging uh, the U.S. capacity in that particular forum. Thank you, Adam. Just, just several words on, on, on Chinese engagement, Chinese factor. Well, certainly some, some post-Soviet countries would like to balance Russia with China. They are seeking investment, Chinese investment, Chinese credits, and they very much hope China will become a factor enabling them to, to balance Russia. But well, it, is, it, is, it is somehow true in case of Belarus. So there are... Chinese investment there. There is a great stone industrial park uh, at mm, joint uh, Belarusian Chinese uh, um, industrial park. Yes, uh, there are some Chinese investments when it comes to logistics mainly. But I would not overestimate a political factor behind Russia. Uh, uh, China um, perceives Eastern Europe as a uh, post-Soviet Eastern Europe as a Russian backyard, and they will not challenge Russian interests in the region, I think. So it is, it is and, and, and they will certainly support stability, because it is important, especially Belarus, it is important transit road for Belt and Road Initiative, but I would, I would say that uh, no prospects for a Russian-Chinese confrontation in post-Soviet space, not only in not only in uh, Belarus, but even in Central Asia, where the uh, clash of interests is more more visible. But but still, both countries, both Russia and China, do everything they can in order to avoid uh, open confrontation. Thank you very much. Either, um, on Georgia, briefly, I think the events in Georgia actually show that we have very much in common. I mean. Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova. Uh, and I think uh, the challenges are the same. I think the um, kleptocratic elite, uh, they very much uh, exchange ex experience among themselves, uh, which uh, is very much targeting, securing their power of control and influencing the policies. At the same time, trying to benefit from uh, the relations with uh, EU, with US, uh, from time to time um, to show to the public that they are actually on the right direction. So, but without uh, addressing um, 
this challenge, uh, we will be very much struggling to ensure better resilience in our countries because Russia does need uh, does not need any any uh, any of that. On China, just briefly, because Moldova is a very small country, but at the same time. Um, without uh, a very long history of uh, interacting with China. But I have to tell you that over the last year or so, we have seen a, a rising interest from China in, uh, in Moldova. There are a number of contracts uh, with uh, some Chinese uh, companies investing, uh, ready to invest in infrastructure projects. Uh, but I have to tell you, I mean, from the trade perspective, uh, now uh, the uh, free trade area agreement with a uh, free trade agreement with China is being negotiated. Basically, uh, we're at the, at, uh, at, uh, the end of it. Um, and f from what I see, is basically very much China is like to is would like to benefit as much as possible from. Uh, countries like Moldova or Ukraine and others uh, pretty much looking as a gateway to, to Europe uh, to benefit from uh, TCFTA perspective, I mean, opportunities we have as well because Moldova is very much uh, uh, of that. Uh, and I think with that I'll stop uh, just to, to mention as one concluding remark is that uh, indeed um, we I would love to uh, talk about Moldova, Ukraine, and Georgia less as in-betweeners, uh, but more like uh, uh, independent actor, actors that have to be asked or consulted, uh, 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 preventing any of deals which can be done or, or will be done over our heads, because that has been proved not being very successful over the years. Thank you. Yes, may we have less in-betweenism. I think that is a great concluding remark. Well, before we thank our panel, congratulations. You've made it past the first three segments, and lunch will be served just out back. But I want to give you a preview of coming attraction. Um, and we will call you back very promptly, because sort of the, to, to provide some conclusions, we have an awesome journalist round table. table. Peter Baker at the New York Times, Susan Glasser with The New Yorker, and Renee Pfister from the De Spiegel office here in Washington to help us figure out what happened today. Maybe you guys have been following this. I haven't followed what's been going on today. But to put all of this in a journalistic context, so please stay with us for one more session. But before you go for lunch, please thank this fantastic panel for a really important discussion. Thank you so much. If everyone can begin to take their seat, we will uh, start our panel conversation. Um, I forgot to wish you bon appetit before lunch, but I hope it was uh, a good lunch. Um, and hopefully we will uh, give you a little dessert, a little journalistic dessert here. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I'm being very unfair. Poor Susan, she is the ultimate multitasker. She is listening to the uh, hearing and trying to, she's amazing to me. Well, again, thank you all so much for staying with us. If you've been with us for the whole day, thank you so much. If you're just joining us, welcome. 
Uh, welcome to CSIS and our Transatlantic Forum on Russia in partnership with the Center for Polish-Russian uh, Dialogue and Understanding. I liked it. We had, we've had fantastic conversations, starting with Senator Van Hollen working through two expert panels, but I have to say I've been looking forward to this conversation. Let me briefly introduce to you our, our journalist roundtable. Immediately to my left is Renee Pfister, a, uh, the Washington bureau chief for Der Spiegel, who just arrived in July. Renee has for many years covered uh, German politics and Chancellor Merkel in particular. You may recognize this name because in 2013 he helped co-write the investigative story that revealed the NSA uh, tape scandal. So uh, if you see Renee's name, and that was uh, that was Renee, and that investigative journalism. Moving down, uh, we're delighted to have Susan Glasser with us, staff writer at The New Yorker. You probably have read uh, Susan's excellent weekly column on life in the Trump administration, uh, monumentous articles on Secretary Pompeo, which are must-reads, and others. Susan was the founding um, editor of Politico magazine, editor-in-chief of foreign policy, and had uh, uh, worked uh, and been the editor of the Outlook session, section of the Washington Post. Immediately to her left is Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. I should say both Susan and Peter spent uh, four years in Moscow as the uh, co-chiefs of the Washington Post Moscow Bureau, and we all follow Peter's wonderful writing and covering uh, this exciting White House on an hourly, daily basis. So what we thought we'd do, because this was such an incredible news week, sort of we like to say, what's, what's going on this moment? I wanted to ask each of you, uh, the first question, I want to start with Renee, if I may, and move down the, um, move down the story here. What element of this story as it relates to Ukraine, and in some ways it is a story about Russia, what is it about the uh, impeachment inquiry story that you find the most interesting, Renee? Regarding Ukraine. Regarding, yes, regarding yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. First of all, I uh, have to apologize for my uh, rusty English. As Heather as I said, I um, just arrived in DC and I, I'm still uh, refreshing, not my memories, but my school English. Um, yeah, what's, what was the right? I think for me the most striking thing is that everybody's now talking about uh, Joe Biden and his engagement in Ukraine and his fight against corruption. And I would say it's that's really important important to fight against the corruptions. But um, when you think about the years uh, 2011, 2012, 2013, and uh, um, the section of Crimea and the war in the eastern Ukraine, there were really bigger fish to fry in the region. And I think it was a big mistake that the United States weren't engaged in the whole Minsk process and the process to get a, a ceasefire and a peace in Ukraine because as it, turned out, as it turns out, I think it was a, it was a mistake that, um, 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 that Obama and the United States left the Europeans on their own because they are not strong enough to cut a deal with Russia. And I think that's, the, that's, that's really striking for me that uh, everybody's now talking about Joe Biden and for obvious reason and Biden hunting and, and corruption. But I think for me the question is when 
when it is the case that Joe Biden was responsible for Ukraine, why wasn't he engaged in this process? And I think the answer is that Merkel had a deal with Obama. Uh, Obama had to like contain the hawks in the Congress and uh, stopped weapons to be delivered to Ukraine. And um, uh, Merkel said, okay, I will deal with the Russians. And I think it turned out that was a mistake. Uh, I'm going to take your microphone. I am going to unpack that in a moment, but I find that fascinating. Thank you. Susan, there's so much. What have you found most interesting about this entire story, uh, on the, which is based on the impeachment inquiry? Well, I mean, first of all, I guess I would say it's an old adage in Washington, uh, you know, especially if you work on foreign policy or national security, that, uh, you know, nothing good comes out of your issue becoming part of uh, American domestic politics. I think we can all agree that this, whatever else uh, ends up uh, resulting from this, uh, you know, we're watching an extended play version of that, not just in this impeachment inquiry, I should say, but really over the last several years, essentially, we've seen the, the complete, not only politicization, but repoliticization in, and scrambling of the entire politics uh, and strategy of the United States toward Russia and Ukraine and Eastern Europe as a result of one person. And that's the thing that in many ways I think is sort of at, at the heart of the, the contradiction embedded in, you know, the, the TikTok of the story it doesn't get as much uh, focus as the domestic politics of uh, what happens when you have, you know, a sort of two teams in Congress faced with the issue of what to do about a president. But Let's remember that actually six weeks ago, two months ago, there really wasn't a more bipartisan issue in Washington than whether the United States should continue its, its strong and largely bipartisan support for uh, Ukraine in its ongoing conflict with Russia. Uh, you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot of motivation for reasons we'll get into, I'm sure, in terms of pushing forward a resolution of that. But nonetheless, it was something that members of Congress in both parties, in the House, in the Senate, uh, Republicans traditionally have taken this strong point of view. They're only dissenter to this consensus, not just this year, not just in 2019, but since he became on the political stage has been Donald Trump. He doesn't agree with his own party's policy on Russia and Ukraine, and he doesn't agree uh, with his own administration's policy. So that's been the contradiction at the heart of it. We've now seen that blow up in sort of spectacular form, but I think it, it, it bears noting that uh, essentially Republicans have been faced with a choice about whether to choose their policy preferences or their president, and they have gone with their president. Fantastic. Okay, Peter, what is the story that you find the most interesting? And Susan, I'm going to have you turn your off because sometimes we. Um, no, that's that's. I think first of all, thank you, Heather, for having us. It's really great to be here. Very happy to be with all of you today. Uh, it's great of you to take the time. Uh, I know everybody would rather be watching uh, Fiona Hill, but um, we'll try to do the best we can. Um, I, I think what Susan's point here is is a very good one, which is to say that the politicization every every foreign policy is politicized, right? That was sort of what Mick Mulvaney was trying to say inartfully at that briefing was that, that politics, of course, infuses foreign policy. It always does. You change administration, you change foreign policies uh, based on the policy preferences and politics of the party in power. Uh, what's different here, of course, is that, that politics is not usually meant to be uh, the obtaining of, of, of particular advantage to your own political campaign out of foreign relations. That's the difference here. And um, what we've seen here in the last 
not just a few weeks, but as Susan says, a few months, that the whole Russia, Ukraine, former Soviet space is, is now filtered through a lens of people who have never been there, who don't know anything about the place, but are using it entirely to weaponize against each other. Uh, and unfortunately, what that means, if you want to have a conversation about what to do with Russia, it's not a logical conversation which we would normally have. I mean, normally what we found, Susan and I have found over the years, is that I don't really notice that huge a difference between Republicans and Democrats in the national security space as we do in the domestic space. For the most part, we get a conference together to talk about Russia. The range of options and, 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 and alternatives is relatively narrow, and the people in that space are, are, are less partisan and less polarized than in almost any other uh, Washington conversation. But today, if you were to say, hey, we need to have a conversation with Russia about cooperating on this or that or the other thing, it would be seen as, aha, that's a, that's a Trump idea. You know, you just want to suck up to Putin and you're not, you're not taking them seriously. Or if you say the opposite, you need to take sharp measures because, in fact, they are, in, you know, malicious actors on the world stage, then, aha, you're, you're trying to invalidate Trump's election. You're trying to delegitimize his presidency. That's the way he sees it anyway. So we are stuck in this, in this uh, paradigm where uh, there is no logical conversation about Russia or Ukraine outside of this, uh, this politics. And I don't know, I suppose that will change at some point when perhaps this president moves on, whether it be in a year or five. But um, I'm not 100% sure that that's the case. So Peter, I'm going to stick with you and ask my second question. This maybe is scooping your next story, but what is it, what is it about this story that isn't being covered that you think, for your readership, needs to understand about this story? I, just from a think tank perspective, we obviously get pulled into having trying to help people understand the policy of this, um, but you feel like there's just this, this, this frenzy and that you're not even able to put forward the clarity of, of the policy. Is there some aspect of this that if time would allow that you think is a really interesting, you know, sort of what needs to be uncovered for the American people? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that we, of course, again, see things through our own lens, naturally, that's not surprising, and rather than through Putin's lens or through the lens of Russia's politics, right? Russia made a strategic choice five years ago when they went into Ukraine that they were going to sacrifice the uh, westernizing, internationalizing policy that they had sort of been pursuing in a kind of skelter, you know, how, you know uh, scattershot way basically since the end of the Cold War, and they were going to go all in on dominating their former space. Right, they were going to, They had they had gone to war with Georgia in 2008, and they doubled down with Ukraine in 2014. And they care about the United States, but not as much as we care about the United States. In other words, what they're doing is for their own interests, not simply uh, through the lens of Democrat, Republican, Donald Trump, not Donald Trump. And they see us as, as uh, you know, they're happy to have us doing what we're doing right now, which is at each other's throats. This, is, this number one goal may have been to elect Donald Trump, but number two goal, and it may be reversed in priority, was to, to, to so this kind of dissension, this, this, uh, this distrust, this um, uh, questioning of our very democracy that we're having today. And uh, they, you know, do they care who wins the next election? Yes. Mostly, I think, they're really happy. 
that we are basically uh, off the world stage. They have now taken over literally the same base that we occupied in northern Syria. They're able to do whatever they want in eastern Ukraine. And the truth is we, we don't really care. People don't, people talking, they're throwing out this javelin, javelin, javelin. Does anybody know that the javelins are sitting in a warehouse in western Ukraine under lock and key? They're not in the war. They're not being used. So fine, it's great that we, we provided them. Maybe that serves as a deterrent. That's the argument, fair enough. But the war is still going on. And the United States policymakers are so busy consumed by this politics that we're not able to actually say, okay, how do you change the dynamics in Eastern Ukraine? Because they're not changing there right now. And that's perfectly fine for Trump. He has made us a frozen conflict. We are now another frozen conflict. Oh my goodness. Well, I, I have to say today, uh, we said this in the beginning, today is the sixth anniversary of the beginning of the revolution of dignity of the Maidan. I mean, I have to say the irony of we're having this conversation when how all of this uh, started. Susan, what isn't being covered in your view that needs to be shared as you look at this through your lens? Well, you know, it's, it's a great question. In many ways, we're all suffering from the excess of coverage, right? <laughs> you know, I, the, the, the challenge right now actually is to separate the signal from the noise at a moment when it's overwhelming. We are living in the first impeachment inquiry of the social media era. The president is live tweeting impeachment hearings of him. Uh, he repeated, by the way, his use of the phrase human scum today to refer to the Democrats who are conducting this, which since this is a room full of experts on uh, Russia and Ukraine, I don't need to tell you, is the language of Stalin. It is not the language of an American president. Uh, and you know, one of the things that I think is very striking and challenging for whether it's independent expertise uh, on subject areas or independent journalists, uh, you know, is the insistence on viewing everything through uh, this two-party partisan lens that we live in now. Uh, and you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this this notion that you know the editor of the Post has said we're we're not the resistance, we're we're just doing our work. Uh, of course, that's become more and more challenging. Why do I raise it in the context of impeachment? Because I think that uh, you know we have parallel, non-intersecting processes, and especially for those whose job it is, and you're lucky <laughs> not to have to pay attention to this 24 hours a day, it's quite hard. Should you pay attention to uh, door number one, which is sort of the facts of the case, and you know what do we know and what do, what do we not know? What is the evidence? What is the lack of evidence? There are, you know, is this Democratic case strong, sure. Is it the most airtight case ever produced? No, of course not. They haven't had cooperation from key witnesses. There's a lot of basic questions you'd still want to answer. Uh, and then there's door number two, which is the political surround sound of what inherently is a political uh, process. In the end, it's not a courtroom drama. Uh, it's, a, it's a political drama. And so I think that's a real challenge, especially for people who May, whose main motivation may be to care about, uh, well, what's the impact on Ukraine? What's the impact on Russia? One thing I would say to you, for, to, to those of you who are here from the region or who pay attention to it, you know, the bottom line is you cannot overestimate the ignorance of those uh, who are uh, directly involved in this process when it comes to Russia and Ukraine or their indifference to the impacts. This is all out American political domestic warfare and they don't care about the Minsk process, 
and they don't care about uh, you know what's happening today in the Donbass and all of those stirring statements that you've heard at the beginning and the end of these testimonies from these witnesses at the hearings where they've done a great job of trying to put it in a geopolitical context I assure you that the members of Congress are not listening to that and that is not their interest or focus and the only thing that can happen uh, for Ukraine out of this process is not not good I'm so curious to hear how the German readers, your readership, are, how are they responding to this as you're reporting uh, on this? Obviously, uh, as a weekly, you have a, a broader perspective on this, but you also have an online mm. uh, yes, version sure. as well. Help us understand where the German, this is a transatlantic forum, uh, and, and Russia is a very dynamic issue yeah. for, for the German public. Help us understand how that's going. I mean I don't think that the German readers are so much interested in the Ukraine aspect. They are really, really interested in Donald Trump. Donald Trump is spectacular, unpopular in Germany. I think with Canada, his approval ratings like three or four percent. As much as the Germans left Obama, they hate Donald Trump. And so I think it's a kind, strange feeling the Germans have. I think the whole against the whole political process because there's, I would say, there's, there's this German word Schadenfreude. They, they look at they look at at the United States and the United States was always this huge big country that protected Europe, that uh, protected Germany, and that creates this feeling of inferior. And I think a lot of Germans are really feared when when. Elected, when that Donald Trump will be reelected because all of because all of the consequences that will have in the Middle East and for NATO and things like that. But on the other hand, there is uh, there is, as I said, this little bit of Schadenfreude that that uh, the United States can't manage everything. I would say, and so uh, when, when it comes to our readership, I think uh, the, the, the people now in Germany read more about the United States than they read about domestic politics. Uh, we're replacing German domestic <laughs> politics. That's, so, exactly. Renee, I'm going I'm to stay with you for a minute. Um, so you've covered the chancellery, Chancellor Merkel. Chancellor Merkel had such a, a pronounced role on Russia policy, particularly mm. European Union Russia policy. Um, she was the, the interlocutor with President Putin in Russian. She was the one who famously said President Putin lives in a parallel universe. We don't feel her presence anymore mm. in this policy space. And I would just love, again, you've covered the chancellery, you know the domestic politics, which is part, this is wrapped up in domestic politics. Help us understand sort of where you see Chancellor yeah. Merkel in this. I mean, I think one has to remember that every German chancellor since Konrad Adenauer tried to establish a kind of special relationship to the man in the Kremlin. I mean, Adenauer tied West Germany to the Western aliens, but on the other hand, he had a huge success sorry, when he uh, negotiated in 1955 the, uh, the release of the last German prisoners of war with Khrushchev. And then we had um, Willy Brandt with the Ostpolitik, and then we had Helmut Kohl, who had uh, very close ties to Mikhail Gorbachev, and that, is, that was one reason why he tried to um, negotiate the German unification. And then we had Gerhard Schröder, who was so close to Putin that some people say it turned into corruption. And now we have Angela Merkel, and she's the first, we have Angela Merkel since 2005, and, and she's the first German chancellor who knows the Russian culture very well, who speaks fluently Russian. 
And I think there's a strange mixture when it comes to Merkel and Putin between they're really close and at the same time completely hostile. And, and I think the reason is that Merkel sees in Putin, this old KGB agent, he was stationed, stationed in Dresden for several years, and I think Putin sees in Merkel like the type of person, she wasn't part, Merkel wasn't part of the civil rights movement in Eastern Germany, but she was very close to it, the type of person who not only brought down the German wall, but uh, brought down the whole Soviet empire. And so when I talked to Merkel's when, when I heard Merkel talk and when I talked to her adv uh, advisors, they always say there's no personal relationship when they uh, are on the phone or on a summit. And that's funny because, I mean, they are, they, these two peoples are the big survivors of the world stage. I mean, Putin is now in office, I think, since 2002 with since this... 2000. 2000, and Merkel since 2005, and presidents are coming and going, and they survived. And they talked hundreds of times together, and, and, and yet they have no close relationship. And I think that's might be a part of the problem. So if uh, after today, uh, the inquiry, at least for what we know, ends, and then uh, where, well, what I'll be focusing on, and a lot of my colleagues, will, the president goes to London for the NATO leaders meeting on December 3rd and 4th after our Thanksgiving holiday. And NATO is also part of this story. Uh, and security and, and strength. And um, Susan, I want to start with you. And then, Peter, I don't know if you're going on the trip when the president, uh, or you're handing that over to, an, uh, to another colleague. How do we think about this as we, as we approach uh, the NATO leaders meeting? Uh, I used to think that President Trump was the official disruptor of NATO, but now we have uh, actually two. President Macron has decided this needs a big discussion, and of course President Erdogan has been shaking up the alliance in, in different ways. How do we start thinking about this again with your journalistic lens as the President heads to London a week before the UK election, where we also know there's Russian interference in the 2016 UK referendum, and most likely uh, the withholding of an investigative document that would probably suggest more uh, interference or influence. How do you put the journalistic lens on the NATO leaders meeting? How does NATO fit into this, this essential transatlantic pillar? Well, look, I mean, you know, I would say a couple of thoughts. Number one, obviously, President Trump has been uh, a, a deep-seated NATO skeptic. One thing we've seen with a lot of the policy zigs and zags is that they are not really policy zigs and zags. The president, once he has a strong feeling, he may or may not be able to push through uh, a significant policy change, but he has tended actually to hold on to them. So I would say, just analytically, if you're looking at it, does the fact that he has not uh, in recent months spoken about this or pursued his skepticism of NATO, uh, does that mean that he's been successfully dissuaded from doing so? I don't think so. Uh, you know, you're talking about a, a structural change as well where over the last year, you've seen essentially uh, you know, uh, the replacement of his original national security team, which had their own uh, grounding in and rooting in uh, the structures of American national security policy. One of the subsidiary uh, you know, effects of this ongoing investigation is to reveal quite clearly that um, that infrastructure no longer exists around the president uh, and that uh, he essentially uh, is, is unguided and pursuing his own very highly personal view of American foreign policy at the moment 
moment without a team of um, people around him who would have a different view of things. Uh, the national security strategy, please don't quote it to me uh, anymore because I don't think it's an operative document. It might be an interesting document, but it does not necessarily reflect the policy of the President of the United States. It reflects an interesting consensus of uh, those who were working in the Trump administration at that moment in time two years ago. So as far as NATO, you know, don't call it a summit. Uh, you know, uh, it's e exactly. It's a meeting, not a summit. And, you know, even that speaks to the disruptive nature that the President of the United States and also the leader historically in a de facto as well as de jure sense of this organization since its inception is now perceived as such a threat to it uh, that, you know, entire events are structured around giving him a minimal amount of time. Uh, you know, so again, I would say the key NATO policy issue, frankly, is, is a little bit of a cop out of me to say, but it's the same answer as I would give to a lot of foreign policy questions. It happens next November 2020, uh, and the key question about the future of NATO is whether Donald Trump will have four more years in office. If the answer is yes to that, as is quite possible at this moment in time, I would say, uh, then I would be prepared for a significant reordering uh, or dismantling of the alliance. Peter, you've seen a lot of uh, foreign leaders come into the White House over the last three years, and uh, we've uh, watched a lot of interesting press conferences and a lot of dynamics there. I, I don't know if you have NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was just in the White House. Uh, just again, as you cover all of these, what are your impressions from substance to style to how these leaders interact? I'd just be curious, you have such a uh, unique uh, seat at that particular table. Um, yeah, I think, look, I think they've got his number, okay? It's been three years now. These foreign leaders have figured it out. They trade notes, they talk to each other, they compare strategies, how do you, you know, uh, handle him, and it's 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 a doctor's credo. First, do no harm, right? They're trying to get in and out without, you know, blowing up whatever relationship they might have uh, nationally and bilaterally, um, and then hope that their issues that they actually do want to get resolved are resolved on a lower level without him paying attention to it. As long as he's not paying attention to it, there are people. His people, they can usually find some common ground as if it was the Bush administration or the Clinton administration or the Obama administration. I mean, there, you know, a lot of problems are still getting solved. A lot of foreign policy is still getting done below his radar screen. It's when it gets on his radar screen that people don't know what's going to happen and then suddenly find themselves, other leaders find themselves at risk. Um, one thing we've learned is uh, he likes conflict, but at a distance. So let's just say Prime Minister Smith is coming from Europe next week. He might say something really nasty about Prime Minister Smith's country today. He might tweet something tomorrow about Prime Minister Smith personally. And when Prime Minister Smith gets here, Prime Minister Smith will get the full on, you know, hugs and kisses treatment. He doesn't do these things for the most part. There are ex exceptions in person. I was with him, for instance, in Osaka. Just over the, uh, over the summer, we went for the G20. He said before he arrived in Japan that who needs that whole mutual defense treaty anyway, right? He said, uh, even though he's going to meet with Angela Merkel, he said, uh, you know, oh, they're terrible to us on trade. Even though he's going to meet with Modi of India, he says, they're horrible to us on trade. When he gets on the ground, nothing but, you know, sunshine and light. He doesn't like to actually confront people in person. So um, what these leaders have done, they've learned to ignore as much as they can the long distance 
barbs and focus on what they can get done in the meeting. They also know, of course, long, this is not new, flattery works. Stoltenberg has, has a favorite of Trump's because three years ago, Stoltenberg says, you're the guy who's getting NATO to, to pay up its dues, even though that's not really what's going on. And it doesn't matter what the actual facts are. It doesn't matter what else Stoltenberg ever says. Stoltenberg will always be on Donald Trump's favorite list. And so when he comes, he's in good shape. Um, it's, it, it's, 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 there, there, no doubt that they are, at this point, buying time. Everybody's looking at the impeachment hearings. Everybody's looking at the calendar. And they, they see one year left until the election. And there's, you know, at least for a while, there was an assumption on the part of other foreign leaders, clearly, that they could wait him out. Now I'm not sure they're 100% there. They, don't, they understand that the impeachment has got him in political hot water, but they also, those who have good embassies, understand that he's not likely to be thrown out of office by the Senate, and therefore he's going to go into the election, and he's going to have an issue to run on, and he's going to run against Democrats who seem to be pivoting so far to the left that he will have a you know, pretty easy argument to make that you know, they're all socialists and you need to keep the economy going with me, and he has a decent chance at re-election, even though the polls would suggest how much trouble he's in. So if you're these foreign embassies and foreign leaders, you're, re you're reckoning now with the prospect that you know you might not be able to wait out for a year. You may have five years to go. What can you get done that's useful, and how can you avoid problems that you don't need? That's the calculation, I think, that's going on among the people that we talk to uh, from, from other places. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to throw out to all three of you, um, as we head into this uh, very critical U.S. Uh, presidential election year, uh, getting back to Russia policy, the, the president uh, has suggested that he may perhaps invite uh, President Putin to the G7, uh, which would be, I guess, G7 plus. Uh, he has been uh, offered uh, an invitation to join President Putin on May 9th for the uh, VE celebration days, the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, a very important, obviously, date. And I'm just wondering, Renee, I want to start with you. Um, uh, Help us understand sort of how the, the, the German approach would be in thinking about how to uh, 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 reduce the isolation of President Putin. It's happening. President Macron and others. How, uh, just with thought, your thoughts on, mm. on a U.S. president going to Moscow uh, in May or, again, this sort of bringing that, the Russian presence back into the G7. Would that be welcome? Yeah. Certainly some in Germany would welcome that. Maybe some parts of the Social Democratic parties, they will welcome that, but I think Merkel opposes the idea of, of rejoining uh, Putin to the G7 or then G8. But I think, as Peter said, I think nothing good can, can come out in a relationship of Donald Trump and, and Putin because because one part of the, uh, of the American society sees uh, Donald Trump as a Russian spy. And so if he has a, a hard stance on Russia, then he says he does it because everybody thinks he's a Russian spy. And he have his, uh, is, if he has a soft stance on on, um, on Russia, then everybody says uh, he does it because he is a Russian spy. And so I think we are in a stalemate in the uh, Russian-American uh, relation as long as uh, Donald Trump is president. Mm. Yeah, I think that actually is a very important point. Uh, you know, none of us here can sort through, uh, you know, the nature of the president's puzzling affinity for Vladimir Putin or the statements he's made. We just don't know uh, and may never know, you know, what is at the heart. What we can say is that, you know, both politically and clearly from a policy standpoint, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be this back and forth because inherently it's a political issue at this point. I, I would watch, I, I think you're right, Heather, to spotlight, uh, you know, 
what kind of meetings uh, does President Trump have with Putin in person over the next year? We still don't really know, by the way, how frequently they actually have talked and engaged with each other, even on the phone. Uh, one of the things this White House did was to cancel the regular uh, public readouts or you know press briefings of any kind with journalists, and I think that's quite interesting and relevant uh, in the context of the current uh, inquiry, but you know, so I'll be looking at uh, you know what kind of in-person interaction do they have? Uh, you know, he did. I, I would not at all be surprised if he invites uh, Putin to join uh, the G7 meeting that is going to be somewhere in the United States, but not apparently in Florida. Um, so you know that that'll be something that is telling. Uh, but at this point, uh, I wouldn't think there's almost anything that would actually indicate a longer term direction for U.S.-Russian relations because so much uh, rides on the election. Even, by the way, if President Trump were to be reelected, which, as again, I, I do think is quite a real possibility, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that anything he says over the next uh, 11 months would be indicative of the actual policy that we might pursue after the election. And I, I think I, I, I agree with Renee's point, too, that, that, that it's impossible to do anything right now with Russia without it being seen through the lens of, of, of that. And I think that, uh, you know, actually President Trump identified that early on in 2017. He says one of the big problems with this whole thing is I can't get policy done, and even if you wanted to. Maybe it's a rational, smart thing to do to say we need to move closer to Russia and put these conflicts behind us. But even if he wanted to do that for a rational policy reason, it's just too tarnished right now. It's too poisoned the atmosphere. The Congress won't let him. And the truth is the Congress, as much as they have gone along with him on most things, has been pretty strong on, on putting the brakes on him when it comes to some things when it, on Russia, right? In his first year in office, when he was at his strongest point in the summer, Mitch McConnell basically pushed through Congress, both houses, almost unanimously sanctions because they didn't want him to be able to, to lift them on his own. Maybe it would make sense for him to lift them on his own, but Congress wasn't going to let him do that, and it's certainly not going to let him do that with a Democratic House, which will view anything he wants to do through, you know, as, as a suspicious uh, act. And so it has kind of frozen the relationship. And this is the downside for Putin to the extent that if he actually thought he was going to get some policy things done, he's now discovered that having President Trump in there with this cloud hanging over him uh, means that he cannot accomplish those things. The New START Treaty, is, you know, at this point does not look like it's going to be renewed. That's something Putin actually would like. Uh, there's not going to be any kind of, you know, collaboration on issues that, uh, in which the two sides might theoretically actually have some mutual interests. Um, and I, I don't see that changing. So I think that uh, uh, we are again as where this frozen conflict will. So I'm going to ask Peter, you and Susan, and I'm going to ask Renee a slightly different question. Where do you go for sources of sort of the formation of U.S. policy towards Russia or Ukraine right now? I think in part this extraordinary, uh, these hearings have demonstrated the, the men and women who, who do our policy work and uh, the difficult work. But today, I'm not sure I would know. So I guess I'm asking you for advice. Where would you go? Is it in Congress? Um, is it uh, where, where, where do we go to really understand where U.S. policy is being made? You know, um, I, you have Twitter, right? And that's where I would go. I mean, the truth is, look what happened just in the last week, okay? The president released his transcript, or at least a rough transcript, maybe a partial transcript, who knows, but they're advertising as a transcript of his April 21st call with uh, Vladimir Zelensky right after his election in Ukraine. In that call, it's very, you know, 
normal pleasantries, congratulations, you're great, blah, 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 all the things you actually kind of expect of, you know, one of these sort of check the box kind of calls. If you go back and look at the readout that Susan points out we don't get as often as we used to, that the White House issued on April 21st saying the president had a call today with the newly elected President Zelensky, that document put out by the White House says the president raised corruption and he talked about the importance of territorial integrity. Nowhere in that call, according to the transcript or the rough transcript that they just released this last week. So which of these documents is correct? My, my guess is that the thing they put out last week is probably pretty close to what he did talk about and that the document that they put out as a readout is a function of the national security process, which they wanted him to talk about this stuff because that's what policy says you're supposed to talk about. And yet we have seen time and time again, policy is what the president decides it is, not what his aides decide is. Remember the big lock letters, do not congratulate, right? Do you remember that? President Putin wins another term. The staff gives him talking points for his phone call he's going to have with President Putin. They say, do not congratulate, giant big block letters. What does the president do? He says, congratulations. So in fact, the truth is he has shown time and time again that he makes the policy, not the rest of the government. But as I just said before, there is a lot of policy made below his level, outside of his eye range, that does take place in the lower levels between them that's, that he might not like if he actually knew about it, but that he lets go because he doesn't pay attention to it. And that's this bizarre dual track situation we have right now. Yeah, I think that is actually literally what is at issue in the impeachment hearing today uh, while we're having this conversation. Uh, you know, that you asked who, who, who makes policy or who are even the sources, right? They're, they're not making policy anymore. They're talking to their lawyers, number one. Uh, number two, it's a, it's a small fraternity, as Peter pointed out, of people who historically have paid attention to Russia and Ukraine in the U.S. government. Uh, they know each other. They're bipartisan or nonpartisan. They work across administrations. And now uh, it's not clear to me what the future of their work is. Uh, you know, from the beginning of the administration, actually, you would hear, you know, many foreign visitors would come to town and, you know, Republican wise men would counsel them when they said, well, how should we understand the Trump administration? What did they say? They said, uh, and I remember having a conversation with a very senior German official, actually, about this, uh, who was one of the first visitors to uh, Washington in the, the Trump presidency. He went to seek a very well-known Republican's advice. He was told, don't pay attention to the Twitter feed, pay attention to the policy. But of course, what we now know is almost the exact inverse for the reasons that Peter has pointed out. I've been very struck listening to uh, you know, all the hearings. And aside from this last hour, I've, I've actually listened to basically every single minute of this, which I don't recommend necessarily. Uh, but what I can tell you. She's listening, so you don't have to. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like a human sacrifice. Um, Really, the most interesting thing, actually, is this question of what is U.S. government policy and who makes it, and a very radical notion that I've, I've actually never heard before, and it's quite interesting that it's coming up, very radical notion of a maximalist, almost absolutist version of the president's powers has been advanced, uh, not by one person, but by multiple officials as a core part of the, the defense of the president. Essentially. You may think that American policy is not only to support Ukraine with nearly $400 in military and security assistance, but if the president decides at lunch that he no longer supports that policy, even if he fails to communicate that to you and you're his national security advisor, then the policy from that moment forward uh, is that we do not provide that assistance. Now, what's being tested, of course, is that we have uh, 
a Congress, first of all, right? So Congress has a role in this when it comes to appropriating money. So I think that's relevant and interesting from the point of view of policy. Peter's right, especially on Russia. Pay attention to Mitch McConnell. This is an issue that he's cared a lot about from the beginning. And uh, NATO. And, he's been fantastic. And NATO, correct. So I, I think that in some ways you could argue that he has as much or more power than the national security advisor right now. Uh, you know, we have a national security advisor who is very inexperienced, who's definitely never had any experience working on issues related to Russia uh, and Ukraine or multilateral organizations like NATO. Uh, and I think that, you know, the balance of power, not only because Mitch McConnell holds the president's political fate in his hands, uh, but also because he actually cares about Russia. So I, I would say understanding that dynamic would be pretty important, number one. And then number two, uh, what is the fallout uh, inside the State Department? We have seen a dramatic, I, I've never seen anything like it actually, in several decades in Washington, of a, essentially a public standoff uh, between the Secretary of State and, and an uprising in the professional American Foreign Service. Uh, we're in the middle of that, so I don't know how that ends. I would just real quickly, to, to Susan's point, exactly what, what she just said about McConnell is important. The Ukraine aid that got restored didn't get restored because suddenly President Trump came and saw the light and decided everything's fine and Ukraine is taking care of corruption and I'm happy to give them the money. It happened because Mitch McConnell got involved along with Jim Inhofe and Rob Portman and Lindsey Graham and a handful of Republican senators as well as Democratic senators and said, if you don't turn it back on, we're going to legislate on this. And he had that, he, that, that turned things around within a couple days, actually. Well, that turned things around, but then if you look at the timeline, the other significant fact that we don't know is the extent to which uh, the, the, the whistleblower's complaint had already made its way to Congress in this crucial period of September, what changed from September 9th to September 11th. The answer is, is that the the whistleblower's complaint uh, and the existence of it was made public and Congress said that it was actually going to be investigating the withholding of the Ukraine aid. So it was both the internal lobbying by Republican senators, but also there is the unresolved question of the extent to which uh, the president was aware of this whistleblower complaint and there, there was a public investigation of it. So my answer to the question is, I think Congress is just playing and continues to play an outsized role in foreign policy. And I, it was struck, and we had Senator Van Hollen here, very, a very activist voice. But I'm just thinking when President Trump uh, met with President Erdogan, you had five Republican senators, and they were the ones that were delivering the really tough messages on S-400s. And, and again, Senator Van Hollen gave us a very strong message on that as well, very bipartisan. Um, it seems to, it feels to me that exactly those Republican senators are really playing from Senator Jim Risch and, and others playing such an important role, so maybe that's a clue. Okay, Renee, um, I was gonna save the toughest question for last, and then I wanna turn to our audience. So, as I mentioned, we had always come to know, particularly as uh, the annexation of Crimea, the, the, the intensity, uh, it continues to be intense five years later, in Donbass, you had Chancellor Merkel playing a strong role. You had then French President Hollande playing a quieter role. These roles have seemed to have, have changed. And President Macron surprised us, uh, at least surprised me analytically, the end of August by suggesting that it was time, because of these great power competition, the president, that the, the Europeans needed to reach, an, these are my words, reach an accommodation with, uh, with the Russian government to be able to, to manage a growing China challenge. And so to, uh, the, there's a, an effort by uh, French diplomats to, to think about a new European security architecture. Uh, the pre 
President Macron's surprising comments about uh, NATO and its, 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 its brain death. Um, help me understand, for, again, from watching the Chancellor so much, this uh, Paris-Berlin dynamic, uh, it feels frayed. And what I hear from Europeans, they're very concerned. They're not entirely sure they know where the French government is heading in all of this. Um, and we don't hear from the Germans as much as we used to. And you can quarrel yeah. with all of my assessments <laughs> of that. I think I would say the big disappointment is that Merkel is not more engaged in world politics. I mean, I think the Why is she not? Can I stop you? Why is she not? Yeah. I think she, she ran again. She, she wouldn't have run again if Hillary Clinton would have been uh, the American president. Yeah. She was willing to, re not to resign, but not running for a fourth term um, uh, if uh, Hillary would have won. And then there was this famous uh, dinner in Berlin, and I think uh, uh, Barack Obama played a crucial role that she um, made that she uh, ran for a fourth term. And everybody said when she, she was this type of anti-Trump figure, the leader of the free world, as the New York Times uh, wrote at the time. And now you realize, and she is widely popular, not only in Germany, but all over the world. And she could use this credit to start a debate about the role, not only of Germany, but of Europe and the world. And she doesn't do it. And I think that's really, for me, it's really disappointing. When it comes to France, we had always this, uh, like these debates with France about NATO. And obviously, the the French think it's a little bit embarrassing that they should be protected by the Americans, and so they want to play their own role in Europe and to have the leading role in Europe. But I think the analysis of, of Emmanuel Macron was completely right. That saying the United States, and I think that is a thing that's not only connected to Donald Trump, but it's a bipartisan uh, like consensus, not only in, in uh, between Democrats and Republicans, but in the American society, that Amer that American is no longer willing to play like the safeguard of the liberal world order, and that had, that has huge implications for Europe. Uh, I think it's a perfectly plausible scenario that we'll have a, a rise, that ISIS will rise again in Syria in one or two years, and that we'll have an American president, may it be Donald Trump or may it be Elizabeth Warren, and, um, and um, they say, okay, now it's a European problem. And I think Angela Merkel does nothing because she knows it's really unpopular in, in, um, in Germany to face these harsh questions. And I see the problem that the real big problems will knock on our door and we are unprepared. And I think that that's really, that's, that, that's, the, that, that's the thing we should prepare for in Germany and I don't see it. It's just the Germans, not only the politicians, but I think the German public just sticks uh, the head in the sand. There are days where I felt like doing that. Uh, so I, let me turn to our audience. If we can bundle a few questions and uh, let our uh, journalists answer them quickly, and then they have got to race back and start doing some uh, work. So let me start here. We'll take the colleague here, and then Anders, and then we'll take those next two in just a bit. And just keep your questions. Please identify yourself. Really short questions so we can finish up. Sure, I'll keep it brief. Um, Piotr from the UK and SAIS. Um, thank you, this is really riveting. And um, I just want to hear from Renee particularly, although please do jump in, Peter and Susan, if you so wish, um, about, because for me, the next 12 to 15 months is going to be quite significant um, because we have quite an important election in the UK. The result 
in the UK, uh, whether or not it goes towards a conservative government or Labour will be, I think, quite important for the security relationship of the UK towards the rest of Europe. Um, and then obviously the 2020 election. So for me, and also when you have domestic parties in the UK doing quite strong disinformation campaigns themselves, we think about the disinformation of Russia. Well, unfortunately, some Western democratic institutions or parties are engaging in variations of it, but it's still disinformation. Anyway, so my question is basically, what can you? How do you perceive the future environment in the next fifteen months? Be it you know relationships of security to Europe and the, Europe. Thank you very much, uh, excellent panel. Anders Åslund from the Atlantic Council. Question mainly to the two American uh, journalists here. How do you suggest that journalists should write about news from Donald Trump? Uh, my suggestion is that Donald Trump said so and so, but uh, according to the Washington Post, he has lied more than 13,000 times since he became president, and then go on. Or do you have some other way that one should put a caveat around Trump's statements? Thank you. Thank you. Let me start with Renee and, and, and again others. Uh, we Exactly. Right after that NATO leaders meeting, we have a major UK uh, election on December 12th. We're watching that closely. And I think part of the conversation you were having about the French-German dynamic is that the UK, that important security foreign policy actor, has removed itself from that conversation. And then we'll, we'll let you guys tell us how you base uh, presidential statements and then factual differences in that. Yeah, I think this, the bottom line is that, that, and I think a lot of Germans see the problem that UK, because of its history, because of the Commonwealth, they used to be, they, there was a world power and they used to be, think really globally. And the Germans, they don't, Germans don't think globally. And Merkel sees as soon as Great Britain leaves Europe, it, was, it will be even harder to form a kind of like coherent um, foreign policy because the, 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 the British were really helpful in thinking about the role of Europe in the world. And now their relief and so that creates a big problem. She's smiling very big. No, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'll leave it to Peter to explain about uh, real-time fact-checking because, you know, one of the, the truths of this media moment is that, uh, you know, it has dramatically transformed the work of a journalist uh, even before it came into contact with, with the Trump era. And, uh, you know, rather than having, uh, uh, you know, a, a whole day to work on a story, to write it, to produce it, and to send it out into the world, uh, you know, you have minutes at best. Uh, often I watch as Peter's story, you know, in the New York Times is published before he's even had a chance to review the, the edit of it. Uh, we're just living in a completely different environment that is uniquely uh, susceptible to the tools and techniques of information warfare, propaganda, lies and disinformation, which is at the heart of uh, I think a lot of the dysfunction that we're encountering every day, uh, and of course it's being crystallized uh, right now in this impeachment inquiry, but it, it, it exists outside of that moment as well. Uh, and what I would say as a journalist, uh, you know, and I, I tried to write a bit about this after 2016 election, uh, you know, we grew up in a, in a moment when the presumption, you know, in fact the core tenant of our religion as journalists was the idea that uh, transparency and sunlight uh, were the best disinfectant. It's not our job to be activists or to be partisans, uh, but it was our job to pick 
up the rock and to show you all the creepy crawly things that exist underneath it, uh, in, in whether it's in politics or corporate life or whatever our sphere was. Uh, and, you know, I, like others, deeply you know, believed uh, in that as, as a key role, not only as a job and a mission that was going to be pretty exciting, but also as, as a function of our democracy. What I feel was tested in 2016 and has been tested ever since uh, is this assumption that accountability necessarily flows from transparency. Uh, and I think that's where the, the disconnect has come, uh, where the, the rewards and the perversions of uh, uh, the devaluing of, of fact uh, you know, is such that it's not clear uh, that accountability flows uh, from transparency. And of course, we're seeing uh, the misuses and warping and distortions of transparency. So, you know, it's a little philosophical way of answering it, but, um, you know, I would say we're in, we're in pretty deep trouble. I don't, I don't see anyone who has a prescription uh, that's leading in a positive direction. Uh, and, you know, look at the alternate narratives uh, being produced by this extraordinary proceeding. Peter and I met each other uh, at the Washington Post during the uh, impeachment uh, of President Bill Clinton. Uh, and if I could say one thing that has changed the most in that period of time in Washington, you know, that this, the raw material of politics is the same, you know, <laughs> it's people. We'll always have hypocrites and liars and whatever. The thing that has changed is, is the media landscape and the unique susceptibility of Americans to lies and misinformation. Peter. Susan is the family optimist, um, just to be clear. Uh, honestly, it's a, it's a great question. I, 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 we struggle with this all the time. It's our job to scrutinize and fact check every president, of course. That's our business. It just happens we're in a volume business now. Um, and it, it is so intense and it is so, uh, uh, I've never seen anything like it, obviously. Where, where, you always have to provide context with any other president because they're, they're going to tell you part of the truth, or the truth that's the most favorable to them, or, you know, and sometimes they do lie. Um, but largely they stick to at least some version of the truth, even if they haven't been 100% uh, candid with you. We have a, a president now who's operating on, on a different fact set. And it's one thing to say, well, everybody gets things wrong. That's true. Uh, this one repeats the things that are wrong, even after they've been pointed out to him that are wrong again and again and again. So when you write a story, no. Do we start the story saying President Trump, comma, who has been documented to have told 13,000 false statements, comma, said today, blah, blah, blah. No, we don't do that. But I think that every story we write where he makes a factual assertion, we try as hard as we can to, to fact check it in real time, in, in the moment, as quickly as we can, so that we're presenting the, the, the context and any, any supporting or, or, or contrasting you know, evidence that we can at the time. We have a full-time fact checker in our bureau that we hired now for the last few years. It's nothing but check, you know, not just Trump, but others as well, but Trump is the main uh, uh, you know, uh, subject of that. And we have fact check after fact check after fact check. Now, what we've discovered, of course, is to some extent it, it doesn't really necessarily matter. Right? To a lot of readers, it will confirm their conceptions of who he is, and they'll say, yeah, this is a guy. And then there are others who will say, this is just the media being you know, a bunch of nitpicky uh, uh, you know, liberal nabobs who are tearing down the guy who's our champion. And if you go to these rallies, which I do, and you talk to people who really, really like President Trump, they see him as a truth teller. That is the great irony in America right now, is that half of America, or a little more than half of America, sees him basically as an unmitigated uh, liar, and the other 
half or 40-some percent sees him as a truth-teller in his own way. They know that some of the specifics aren't correct. They may not trust the specific assertions he makes, but they think he's telling a broader, larger truth. And that's the real challenge we have right now in a media landscape, is how do you address those kind of, uh, you know, these parallel worlds that Americans live in today? And uh, I don't know that we have the right answer, but we're trying our hardest. Well, Peter, I just want to offer my reflection as a think tank uh, in, in this environment. And I'll just, the, the, when the president uh, had tweeted out the interest in the Wall Street Journal had uh, about the interest of purchasing Greenland. And I just, I want to point that, so for a think tank, the, it is that the positive part is the opportunity to explain. So for three days, I talked about Greenland, I talked about the Arctic, the strategic imperative, why it is important, why the president was right. President Truman did offer uh, to purchase Greenland. It is never how I thought I would start my day on that August morning. Um, but this is where, and I'll bring this sort of full circle to what we've been talking about today. We don't like where we are necessarily, and the deep polarization and divisions in our country and the fissures within the transatlantic relationship that are there. But this gives us an opportunity to explain why is it important. People are listening now. Now they may be listening to the views that, that support their initiative. But I feel like people are involved. This room has been filled all day. That doesn't happen very often. So it is, a, it is the opportunity to explain. But Susan, your, your, your point, we have to reconnect accountability and transparency. And that's what investigative journalism does. That's why we, the, the lives that are risked to doing that kind of transparency and the leaders that, in some ways, this impeachment inquiry is demonstrating that there is transparency there. And the American people are getting a pretty big idea of how policy is made in our country. You know, Heather, I'm so glad you brought that up, actually, because I know I have been sort of pretty doom and gloomy, which, which I generally am, but actually, this is a really, I, just to conclude on that, you know, this is an important point about uh, one thing that was clear to me, you know, sort of editing foreign policy over the kind of uh, years of the Obama administration, the latter years of the Bush administration, was that uh, a larger and larger number of Americans of all political persuasions did not perceive themselves to be stakeholders in this liberal world order that we're now, you know, we talk about all the time. They don't know what the liberal world order is. Uh, they didn't have a sense of what NATO's mission was uh, uh, looking forward. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have the right to question why it is that Afghanistan has become America's longest war. Uh, and it's very clear that while there remains strong residual support for these institutions, that, you know, there's a really a whole generation of people uh, that didn't connect it directly uh, with uh, their definition of the, the national or the public interest. And uh, perhaps you're right that that will end up being uh, the sort of positive side effect of some otherwise negative things. But I do agree that, you know, what you've seen is an unprecedented uh, uh, attention and focus on the institutions of democracy as they're perceived to have come under threat. And that is not a conversation that we would have been having five years ago. So I am so glad we ended this on a positive note. And unfortunately, our time is over. And I think some people have some stories to write or to comment on and need to get back to their office. But thank you for 
ending our conversation in a very newsworthy and contemporary way, I always appreciate reading you and your insights. So thank you so much. Just a shout out very quickly to our wonderful partners, the Center for Polish-Russian Dialogue and Understanding. This is a privilege to provide this transatlantic forum on, on Russia. We have to keep focusing on the issues on Russia, on policy towards Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, and Georgia. And we thank you for being part of our conversation. Have a great day. But before you go, please thank me and uh, joining me. Thank you, this great panel. Thank you. <laughs>